when you realize how strong you can be and how how you can resist disease and when you understand the innate intelligence of the human body and the innate intelligence of that soil that knows what to do when a weed comes up I don't spray it I know it's telling me something I've just yeah. got to figure out what it's telling yeah. me yeah. Charlie learn, I'm just going to walk you down the back paddock <laughs> <laughs> That was Cindy O'Meara and you're listening to the Regenerative Journey We acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and internationally and their continuing connection to country, culture, community, land, sea and sky. And we pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging. G'day, I'm your host Charlie Arnott, an 8th generational Australian regenerative farmer. And in this podcast series, I'll be diving deep and exploring my guests' unique perspectives on the world so you can apply their experience and knowledge to cultivate your own transition to a more regenerative way of life. Welcome to The Regenerative Journey with your host, Charlie Arnott. This week's episode is with Cindy O'Meara. We have spent nearly two hours sitting on, on the veranda of a little little shed looking over 60 beautiful acres up in Mullaney in Queensland, southeast Queensland. We chatted all things health, glyphosate, um, Oh, tertiary education, uh, paradigms, farming, regenerative farming, uh, women in agriculture. We had such a lovely chat. Um, Cindy has a wealth of um, experience and uh, and wisdom that she was so generous in sharing today. And uh, I just want to tell you about our upcoming Victorian Introduction to Biodynamics workshops. They're two days. The first one is on the 18th and 19th of March. It's not very far away in the Macedon, Macedon Ranges, just an hour or so out of uh, Melbourne. And on the 22nd and 23rd, a couple of days later, we'll be in East Gippsland uh, at a 2,000-acre uh, cattle farm there at Woodcott Farm. Um, it's two days, theory in the morning, practice in the afternoon. Go to charliearnett.com.au for all the booking details and I hope to see you there. Okay, Cindy, Cindy, Amira, we're on. Good. We're sitting in your farm <laughs> and you're about to take me on your regenerative journey as we sip your homemade <laughs> licorice tea. Well, it's licorice it's uh, kaffir lime leaf, mm. some lemongrass and some um, apple mint. Because I arrived here at Mullaney. We're just uh, west of Mullaney. Yeah. About about five minutes, ten yep. minutes. Yep. And I turned up and, and Cindy gave me a little rundown on the farm and had a look around and, and then um, I asked her for a cup of tea and she said, what do you want? And I said, just give me something you think I need. <laughs> so what is it? <laughs> What what is this that you thought I needed? It'll is this spark like you up. It'll, it'll, yeah, it'll spark did I look you up. like did I look a bit exhausted when I turned up? Without caffeine, but it'll just give you that spark. Licorice will help clean the liver and That's then delicious. And Can you say can you run is, again? Licorice? So it's licorice. The, the main thing is the licorice and the kaffir lime leaves. Yeah. That's what gives it the taste. And then I looked at my herb garden and I went a little bit of lemongrass and a bit of apple mint. And there's no is there honey in there? Nope. That's really sweet. Yeah. Apple mint, is that what makes it sweet? No, it's the licorice. Bloody hell, that's delicious. <laughs> hey, um, we can talk all day about recipes, um, which everyone can find online. Maybe not that recipe. Can they find that one or they have to probably, listen to this? Probably not. No. No, that's it's, mine. It's a one-off. It's just, it's just something I do every time somebody comes up, I, I brew my tea. <laughs> it's a bit like my wife, Angelica's father, who used to look at people and go and, and just – 
look at them and then go to the fridge and cook something and say, eat this. Oh. Italian. Oh, yeah. Sicilian. Mm. Newy stuff. Um, Cindy, welcome to the regenerative journey. And we are sitting here for the people who. Actually, even for the viewers, they can't see the view, can they? They're looking at a shed. <laughs> as is um, as is always the way, I try and set my interviewees up on their land. Well, not their land, the land that they are stewarding at this point in time um, that hopefully inspires them. And we're looking at a very inspiring view there, the beautiful Morton Bay figs some way down the paddock. We've got some um, – well, how about you? Why don't you explain? <laughs> oh, I wanna, can you explain what we're looking at and why? Like, why are, we, why are you here, really, and what have you done and what, yep. what, what's all that about? Well, um, since I was 21, I've wanted a farm. Um, if you'd asked me as a teenager – That wasn't that was only a couple of years ago. Yeah. <laughs> if you'd asked me as a teenager, what did you want to do with your life, I'd say I want to marry a farmer and have 12 kids. That was just what I wanted. And then I married a chiropractor and had three. So I didn't quite make that goal. But I always had that goal and I wrote it down at 21 that I was going to um, have a farm and I was going to grow all my own food and have cows and chickens and goats and pigs and ducks and all sorts of things. So, you know, I had three kids, busy, uh, nutritionist, wrote books, wrote, you know, wrote for articles for magazines and newspapers and I never got my farm. And then one day my husband and I had the biggest tax bill of our life and mm. I just said to him, it's time for my farm. And, and he said, go out and look for it. So I found this. I, I remember standing up at the corner over there on the, on the corner of my land. It wasn't my land and I saw the for sale sign and I looked at the view and I could see the Conondale Ranges and I love hiking in the Conondale Ranges. Witter was to in front of me, the Witter Range and then Mullaney to the right. Um, there was a, a spring-fed creek. There was three wonderful dams on it um, and grass. Mm-hmm. And this behind us was actually a dairy, an old dairy that then became a sawmill that we then did up as a little cottage so that we could have somewhere to come up to. And um, I, I showed my husband. <laughs> I was really sneaky. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, you'd already bought it and said, I'm looking at this place. <laughs> <laughs> he gave me a budget and um, I showed him a $2.5 million place. <laughs> <laughs> nice one. Yeah, I see what this is going. <laughs> so I showed him that and then I showed him this and it was way under budget of the $2.5 million. Mm-hmm. And um, and I go, like, it's it's between these two. I just don't know, but it's between these two. <laughs> and he says to me, he goes, oh, I know which one. <laughs> he goes, you know how we like to th- you know do things from scratch? I really like this block. We mm. can start from scratch because the other one had a Ted bedroom house on it because I oh. wanted a, um, a retreat. I wanted yep. a health retreat. I wanted yep. people to come and learn how to grow their own food. I also wanted them to be able to get well from little babies that were needing special care right through to um, older people, you know, mm. right through every range. I wanted people to be able to come here and get well. And then we bought it and my husband just said to me, because he's in his 60s and he said, you know what, I don't want to spend the millions that we're going to have to spend to do this. He said, let's just do something different. <laughs> so I watched it so become re- Jurassic so n- Park. <laughs> so not, not retreat as no. such, but just farm, farming. Just farming. Production. And, yeah. And I watched it turn into Jurassic Park. Mm. That was really interesting. And thought, what have I done? I because, just, well, because there were no cattle on here or no man- management, just, just went bananas. Just went crazy. And there's so much rain up here. And mm. like what you see in front of you, that's mm. like a week's growth. And that wow. was very short 
just recently and the cows have been all through here. We um, do it through, my son is the, the farmer here and he does it all through cells. Um, and so that's all been cut down, believe it or not, by the cattle. Wow. <laughs> it just grows like, just you again. watch it grow. So I met a lady by the name of Mirag Gamble. She lives down in the Condor Ranges. She's a permaculture lady and I walked her around and I just said, what am I going to do? I have no idea. And, and she came up with three solutions and I took it home to my husband and I said, what do you think? And he goes, let's go with the consultant, the farmer, and let's get him to get this going. So we rented cattle or gisted cattle, I should say, and um, we did the regenerative, the whole regenerative journey, I guess, for a couple of years. And then we planted fruit trees and... Um, and then from there, we've gone into syntropic farming. Mm. We're breeding cattle. We've got chickens with, egg, you know, they give us eggs. We're going to do meat chickens this year, just for the family, by the way. I'm just, I'm, you know, I'm not prepared to do it, at, at, you know, commercially yet, but yeah, for the a family. Few hurdles there. Yeah, there is. So everything we do is for my family. Mm-hmm. So I can feed them with vegetables, um, fruit. We have fruit abundant. My apple tree just finished. My summer apple tree just finished. We're about a hundred apples on there. I have. Is so that you over there? See, see those tre- those big trees. No, that's somebody else's property. That's uh, our neighbour's property. Okay, yeah. just not the bad end of your though. Hill. Yeah, not yeah. bad view. <laughs> yeah, amazing, amazing. Yeah. How, how many years have you been here then? Uh, I bought it on the sixth of April, two thousand and fifteen, at two p.m. <laughs> <laughs> and then told Howard uh, six months later. <laughs> um, you know what I'm going to do? Can, can we grab that tea cosy? Yeah. Can we put it on your mic? Yeah, I, I can hear it little, clicking too. Can yeah. a little bit of... Let's have a cat on there. How's that? Better? I reckon that's of gold. Yeah. And I've got one over here. I'm just going to I, I can hear over. it doing it too and I'm thinking, what is happening? Yeah, yeah just you just need down. a dead cat on it. Dead cat. Oh. Have you got another tea cosy? No, I don't. <laughs> I've done plenty of interviews with tea cosy. I've got this little silly thing here. I'm just going to excuse me. Actually, I've got to. Look what it looks like, off. the tea cosy. Actually, I think I can turn that. Yeah, I'm not, that's it. I can slip that on there. Turn the mic off. How good is that tea? That is unreal. Oh, it's one of my favourite. That's not sure how well that's going to go. There we are. That, that, let's give that a crack. Mm. Um, Cindy, I want to, because there's, there's lots in that, and we've, I, I got here, we had a look at some of the syntropic farming, uh, syntropic area sort of strip there, and it was just amazing. I want to go back and do a little video and talk more about that. I want to go back to, um, I guess, where a couple of things, like where, so you always want to be a, have a farm, but what, you know, you're not known for farming. No. What I'd love to know is, is understand is how did you what what were you doing before, you know, I get dare say some turning points or, or epiphanies or tension events or catalysts for change to do what you're doing now. What were you doing before that? You know, just to sort of set the scene. What, where did your regenerative journey? What were you doing before your regenerative journey, as it were? Uh, well. Um, If I can go back in my history, you might understand why I love farming. So I had a grandfather who was a corn farmer in the USA. So he was in the 40s when the chemical revolution started. He was um, really against the chemicals. He said it's it's going to be the ruin of farming. And all of the neighbours would say to him, Vince, you're an idiot. This is the new way to farming. Mm. But he never, ever changed. He remained organic. He had 11 children and my mother was the oldest of 11. 
Um, we are the largest hemophiliac family in the world. So six of my uncles wow. yeah, have hemophilia. Wow. And I have three cousins with hemophilia. So he lost the farm because the boys couldn't work on the farm. In those days, that was about working the farm. So the boys couldn't work on the farm. So he lost the farm. So they, they couldn't work on the farm because of the haemophilia? Because they would bleed if they got oh, – if you just hit them, yeah. they'll, they could bleed. Or if they injure themselves, they can bleed for three weeks. So he he had seven boys, six were, had hemophilia, so he had one boy and the rest were girls. And so he lost the farm, they ended up in town, he had two acres and he fed that family on two acres. Mm. And my mother from the age of 12 was the um, basically the mother of the young children. At 13 she got her licence and she would drive the kids to school into town. So this was... I, I saw this life and I wanted that life. And I had uncles who were pig farmers, but pig farmers that were very much, you know, what you don't want to see today. Mm. You know, I, Industrial I, type I, oh, it was terrible, but I didn't know any different and I didn't mm. cringe or anything. I just used to go in there and play with the piglets. And so I look back now and I just think, oh my gosh, how could I have been so blind to that? But I was 15 and I didn't really understand it. So... Um, so that's kind of where it was. I, I'm from a, f- a farming family. My other grandfather lived in Kaikoura, New Zealand, and he also fed the family on a very small plot of land. He would bring the seaweed over from the ocean, fertilise the land, mm. and yeah. And that, that's I've, – I've always seen that gardening and, uh, you know, and, and my mum was an amazing cook. And my dad was an adventurer, skiing, hiking. You know, we did adventures around Australia when no one else was doing – we had a bus – you know, back in the 1960s, we had a bus and we would travel Australia because mum didn't like to camp. So we would, um, we travel. Cool. Yeah. So dad built her a bus with a bed and he called it the Bedford. <laughs> it was a Ford <laughs> that was called the Bedford. So I'm, um, because of the adventure and everything, I went to the University of Colorado in Boulder from Australia because I wanted to ski. No other reason, but I wanted to ski. And that was the closest university to a ski resort, which was about 20 minutes away. And it was there I had an amazing professor, and his name was Professor Dennis Van Gerven. And I did a year of anthropology. I was doing pre-med, and I could have an elective, and I did anthropology. And it was cultural anthropology as well as anthropology. And I thought, wow, this is all about what people did to survive. This is how man survived, and it was all around food, food and culture. So I thought I'm going to be a dietitian. So I came back to Australia, um, went and did my Bachelor of Science, majoring in nutrition to do dietetics at Deakin University in Warm Ponds. And at the end of my degree, I went, this, is, this has got nothing to do with what I've just learned about, <laughs> nothing to do with it. So this is 1983, mm-hmm. and they were talking margarine and low fat, and they were talking high carbs and grains, and, and, and the whole thing just seemed twisted to me. And so I thought... How can I tell people this is what they've got to do? And I don't even agree with any of it. One of my lecturers, he would sit on a stool and his stomach fell to his knees. Um, I looked at my lecturers and they weren't even healthy in any way. And yet here I was wanting to learn, you know, do nutrition. I had a grandfather who was all about organic farming, a grandmother who cooked everything from scratch, a mother that cooked everything from scratch, and a father that had been a pharmacist that became a chiropractor. So he went from mechanism, which is very much agriculture today, to vitalism, which is what regenerative Mm. journey of agriculture is about today. So I just pushed all of my vitalistic knowledge into nutrition. 
and with the historical perspective and understanding and the culture, I figured what people needed. So, it, you know, at, at 23, you're not thinking you can do it. So I went back to uni, did two more years of human anatomy. I cut up cadavers. I learned every ology you could learn. And then at the end, I went, I know exactly what the human needs to be healthy and it's just real food. Mm. <laughs> that was it. Back to butter, back to real milk, raw milks. Um, but we might get sued for that, so I didn't say that. Oh, um, no, we bathe in raw milk. Yes, that's right. We only bathe in it. <laughs> um, you know, back to real foods, no breakfast cereals, no low fat, no mm. margarine, no vegetable oils. And and I, I had a voice. I, I had a mouth. <laughs> As my mother would say, you have a mouth, Cindy, use it. <laughs> you have a voice. And and that's what I did. I just decided. Is it? We are on a, on a road, not a busy road, <laughs> but we are sitting here on just outside of Jesus. It's a V8. Yeah. There's a few of them that go past. <laughs> <laughs> So um, yeah, yeah. So um, it was it was about oh, I I just I'm going to consult, and that's what I did for four years, and then got married and started to have babies, and realised I wanted to be at home more than I wanted to be outside the home, and um, so I started writing for a paper. I wrote um, for the Sunshine Coast Daily. And so I, this is at, um, at um, Lulaba. In Lulaba, yeah. we moved to Lulaba. So, so you have been there for for a little while. Thirty one years nice. we've been there. Yeah, yeah. thirty one years in this area. And so, so we're uh, in Queensland. For those uh, yeah. um, uh, not familiar with um, Australia, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we, we are in in, in southeast Queensland, <laughs> subtropic southeast Queensland, um, on the east coast of Australia. It's beautiful. Mm, it is. It's stunning. And um, yeah, and basically. I started writing for a paper. It was very controversial. Um, I'd have people saying she's a witch, she's a charlatan, she has no idea what she's talking about. Mm-hmm. And then I'd have people go, wow, that makes a lot of common sense. Yeah. And and then I wrote a book called Changing Habits, Changing Lives. It went to, it became a bestseller. Um, when did that come out? That came out in 98. 98, yeah. 1998. Yep, yep. And then 10 years ago, um, after writing a book and a cookbook, rewriting the book again because the food industry isn't getting better. It's getting worse. And so I had to keep adding chapters to what's happening. The latest version has just come out uh, last year, so 2020, and um, I've called it Lab to Table because that's where we're at at the moment with the food industry as it is going from lab to table, not farm to plate. And it's, I laugh, but it's bloody sad. Isn't it, it is. People have no idea. And the, and the byline is how to stop being a lab rat and start making better choices for your table. Mm. So I, I basically, um, about 10 years ago, my husband, who's a chiropractor, just said, I'm sick of being a chiropractor. Let's do something with what you're doing. And um, now Changing Habits has become programs, protocols, organic foods, um, education program called the Nutrition Academy. And the Nutrition Academy is about teaching people what I have and what I know. And the two bases of the Nutrition Academy is historical perspective. What did we eat? How did we survive? What was the cultures? How did we cook, ferment and do all of those things? And then vitalism, which is, I just, it was so beautiful watching you know, Hamish and you do that incredible biodynamic course. Um, I sat there for that three hours of prac, or not prac, sorry, theory, mm. and I went, he's speaking my language. Mm. What he's talking about is what I talk about in nutrition. Mm. Exactly the same. He'd say something and I could just push it to nutrition. And so I, f- 
I just know, I've always known I'm, I've been on the right journey, even though I doubt myself at times, you know, you, can't, you have to doubt yourself to, in order to move forward. But I do doubt, I go, what if everything I'm thinking is wrong? What if, you know, what's happening out there at the moment is is something that I think is mm. not the right thing, but everybody else seems to think it's right, you know? Just on that, when you, so 23 you think, did you say you were 23 when you went and started your own practice? Yes. So tell me about that because if you went to um, uh, did your dietitian's course or the, you know, the university with those chubby professors and so on, which which I'm so not surprised about. I'm, yeah, my tertiary education was in agriculture and mm. we had a few large professors too, but we were talking about lots of things that didn't that made sense at the time but then didn't later when I sort of tried to put them into practice and the word congruent with a lot of things in my mind and, and so on. Um, how was that to start a practice which was really going against what a lot of people would have um, either le- learned in university, seen, re- reading the papers, read on the back of cereal packets? You know, you were really spinning it on its head. What, mm. what was, what was, how was that for you to, to deal with that? Well, people got results. So then, you know, someone would come to me and they'd get How the results. How dare you get good results? <laughs> <laughs> so they'd get results and then they'd send, they'd tell you, you've got to go see this girl. Yeah. And, they, and they'd send someone else. But I must tell you about a, a woman that sent her father. He was in his 70s. And he comes to me um, and he goes, Miss Lovett was my name. My last name was Lovett. And he goes, Miss Lovett, um, my daughter tells me I should come to you. And he's a farmer from Shepparton. He's a pear farmer from Shepparton. And he sits like this. His hands are crossed and his legs are crossed. And I tell him what I think he needs to do. And, I, and when he leaves, I, I'm 23. He's in his 70s, mm-hmm. you know. And he leaves and I think, oh, I didn't get through to him. He's not going to change. Now, he had a numb leg. He had um, indigestion. He had aching joints. He had all sorts of things were happening. And I thought, I didn't get through to him. I won't see him again. That was my thought. A week later, I get a call. Miss Lovett, I need to see you again. So I make an appointment. He comes in and he says, I need to tell you a story. He says, I'm a pear farmer. I'm the best pear farmer in Shepparton. Um, and his name, and people will know him because he's, he's it's in a history. His name is, is very... His, iconic in the... Iconic, that's the word. Can you say his name? Yeah, I think so. Rutherford. Mm. Mr. Rutherford. Mr. Rutherford. Mm. So I don't remember his first name, but it, and he says to me, I want to tell you a story. He said, five years ago, my pears weren't doing very well. And I decided to go back to the old traditional way of growing pears. He said, I got rid of all the chemicals. I got rid of, um, I, I only fed, you know, good, good um, fertilizer. And I said, he did everything natural. I cut back all my pear trees and they're the best in the district now. He says, what a fool I was. I should have done it to myself as well, not just my farm. And so he followed me, you know, and he did everything. Mm. And him and his wife started to get spritey and, yeah, they did really oh, goosebumps. well. goosebumps. That's yeah. very cool. Yeah. And that was, to me, an incredible time in my life where I thought, I am on the right track. I am mm. doing the right thing. So this is 83. This is mm. 1983 when no one was talking about this stuff. Even Mr. Rutherford was ahead of himself, ahead of his time because people weren't doing that. You know, my, I know my grandfather was ahead of his time, um, but he was Mr. Rutherford. He just went, it's not working anymore. I've got mm. to go back to my old ways, the way we used to do it. So, yeah. And did you get um, so that's a, that was a good result and, and and one of many I'm sure. Did you did you have others 
Um, I don't want to dwell on it, but I just know it's it, it's you mentioned before about you know doubting yourself sometimes. Were there times that twenty three year old fresh out of you know education was going oh maybe you know or people going you're mad or how dare you or I don't know phone calls in the middle of the night and dropping yeah. out. Did, did, was there anything not necessarily sinister, but were there times when you just thought you know what this is hard or I'm not sure or I'm scared. I think when, and back in those days, it was letters to the editor, you know, and I remember reading them and, and also it wasn't only just letters to the editor, it was also the editor himself, you know, I remember I wrote an article on Margarine. <laughs> and it, what, one, 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 was it one, one atom away from plastic or something? Basically, <laughs> but you know, I wrote a, um, a very, uh, like a, not only an opinion piece, but I put the science in as well. And he rings me and he says, um, the Margarine Association of Australia has asked us to retract it. We'd like you to retract your comments. I went, no, tell them to sue us. Let's yeah. see if they can do it. Yeah. And you know Proved what? Me wrong. Yeah, you know what mm. they did? They, they obviously told, said to the editor, well, you've got two things. We're either going to go with the law case or you can put a one-page ad on the benefits of margarine on your pa- in your paper for free for us. And that's what he did. Mm. And the other, the, the last article I ever wrote was on artificial sweeteners. And he rings me up again and he goes, no, nah, we'll be sued by the largest <laughs> Artificial <laughs> <soft> Sweetener Association. <laughs> so he said, I can't, I can't publish it. And I said, you know what? I've been writing for you for two years. If you can't write the truth yeah. and you can't publish the truth, I mean, I can write the truth, you can't publish the truth, I don't want to write for you anymore. And at the end of 100 articles, I said, there's a book in this, and that's what Changing Habits, Changing Lives became. Good on you. Is those articles, yeah. Isn't it? It's a great, a great example of compromise, isn't it? That, or, or, I mean, there's lots of other words for it, is um, vested interest and, I mean, that's a whole other podcast series and conversations, but um, good for you for just sticking it and going, righty, well, can't do it. No, but my heart was beating hard. Yeah, totally. And and I, I doubted, well, thought, you know, mm, what if they do sue and what if this and what mm. and then I, and I went, you know what, I've just got to, I, I can't not tell the truth. Mm. I can't not let people know what is happening out there in the food industry. And, and I will name and shame. And, um, and, I, and I've done it and then been taken to task for naming and shaming. Um, what did I do recently? And this woman said, that wasn't very nice. And I went, but it's the truth, you know. How can I not tell the truth about a product that has been bought out? Like, um, I, I, Can you I, say it? Just, I think it's called Just Eggs. Just Eggs. It's, I think, an American company. And um, it's fake eggs. Like it's like powdered eggs. egg or something. It's, it's vegan eggs. It's vegan eggs. Oh, right. Can't so, call them eggs, could you? Pardon? They can't call them eggs, sure. Well, they do. It's called Just just Eggs, I think it's called. Or just, just Not Eggs. I've got it on my Instagram. I, I can't remember. But, yeah. but I read the ingredients <laughs> and I went, how can you call that food? Mm. There is no food in that Just Eggs. And I heard Rich Roll, and I hope Rich Roll listens to this, mm. I heard him advertising them the other night. I'm mm. listening to him um, late at night because I, I was wanting to listen to the person he was um, doing this interview with. And I heard him go, Just Eggs. And I went, what, Rich mm. Roll? You know, you should know better. This this is fake food, synthetic biology, genetically modified microbes making these these flavours and additives and things that taste like it, smell like it, feel like it, you know, everything like a food, 
But it's not food. It's not food. And it's making us sick. And are the numbers in there as well? I mean, that, yeah. they're always a dead giveaway, aren't they? Yeah. There, there's so much in there. And if I get a chance, I'll look it up and then yeah. I'll give you it. But that was one. And, um, and, I, and I do it all the time. And, and I'll, I'll, I'll look at vegan meat. I'll look at all of those things. And I'll just go, how can you think that this is okay for the planet? Mm. Number one, we are fooling with bacteria by genetically modifying them. So vanilla flavoring could be... Um, a, a, a microbe that has the gene of a vanilla bean that gives you the smell of vanilla. So they inserted that into the microbe. And then what they do is that they put it on a substrate and that could be a genetically modified substrate. Mm. So it could be uh, sugar beet, it could be soya, it could be um, canola, it could be anything, any substrate they want. And then it produces vanilla flavoring mm. and it's called natural vanilla flavoring. They can call it natural. They can call it natural vanilla flavoring. They do it with citric acid. They do it with xanthan gum. They do it. There's this thing called ligahemoglobin. Oh, ligahemoglobin. In, in, that's the stuff in the burgers that's yep. supposed to look like blood or something. Yep. That is a yeah. genetically modified microbe mm. that is put on a substrate to make this ligahemoglobin. I don't know how they came up with the name. I think it's. Lego, legume, hemo, blood. Mm. Yeah, that's that's yeah. how they came up with it. Yeah. And smart, it really smart. <laughs> but there's there's um there's plant, this, plant blood. There's this disease that's come out, and it's a new disease, and it's a disease where a person will um, start to itch, and these fibers will come out of their skin: pink, yellow, orange, red fibers will come out of their skin. And they don't really know what it is, but it's possibly a genetically modified microbe that's left the fermentation banks, gotten into the human population, and it's one that makes fibres because they are genetically modified microbes to make fibres, and getting into our microbiome or our microbiota and then producing fibres. And poking through our skin. And poking through our why, skin. Why would they have made that in the first place, to a uh, fibre-producing microbe in the lab? What were they doing that for? Well, it... If, if you've got microbes yeah. that are doing things for you, it's cheap. Yeah. You know, but like, in terms of, I wonder what product they were trying to develop oh, to put these things it, into. It would have been then. a rayon or a, a some sort of um, synthetic Oh, not, oh, not food cloth. even. No, Just, not food. This will be a synthetic cloth. So they're using synthetic biology. Biotechnology is huge. Synthetic mm-hmm. biology um, is is just it's enormous and synthetic biology is the genetic modification of microbes mm. to produce what you want whatever you want whether it be tryptophan uh, vitamin c um so nutrients are being all of our supplements not all yet but i'm sure it'll get there our supplements are being made with it my scary part of this is when they do escape from a lab Mm. As we've heard, there are viruses, bacterias, and microbes that do escape from labs. What are the consequences to the human and animal and, and, and to the planet? Mm. What's the consequences to the microbes when we start genetically modifying these things? We don't know. Well, back to your obviously the name of your book, you know, where, well, the renamed book, um, we are an, an experiment, mm. whether we like it or not, aren't yep. we? And Every unless- time we go shopping, we have the opportunity to step into it. A virtual lab, as it were, and be a guinea pig, or not. Or not, exactly. And that's why I guess I wrote the book, was so that people understood what they're doing to food. Because mm. they'll look at citric acid and they go, oh, that's from citrus. No, it's not. It's synthetic <laughs> biology. Fresh orange. <laughs> <laughs> we don't have any vitamin C in them anymore. Anyway, <laughs> most of them. No, I, and I, it's, it is getting worse. It's not getting better. Every time I write the book, I then 
have a new chapter, like within a month after it's been finished. There's something else. There's another one. So the latest is food irradiation, you know, what they're going to do. I saw it in your blog. Yeah. What is proposed by Queensland um, (coughs) Agriculture to for SANS, Food Standards Australia New Zealand, is to irradiate every fruit and vegetable that is sold in Australia. Before, like, just go, go through on conveyor belt through a radiator and then into the markets. So what they're doing at the moment is they're sanitising our food. Mm, mm. So they put it through, you know, like a if it's organic, they'll put it through one. If it's not organic, it, it, they'll put it through like a chlorine bleach or some sort of some sort of sanitizer. It will go through. So that's the outside of the plant or the or the fruit or whatever it is. But when you irradiate, the gamma rays go through the mm. the food. And kill everything, kill all the bacteria, all the, and and you have to realise the reason we digest food is because of bugs, bacteria, but they're worried about listeria and they're worried about um, what's the other one they're worried about? There's two main ones. That, um, what is it? E- not E. coli. No, that's e- more. E. coli is another one. Strep, E. coli, and one that starts with S. But they're worried about these, and the reason these are out of control is that we have sprayed the land with glyphosate. <laughs> So, and so, so again, if we, if if Queensland Health or any health department were to actually stop and go, why, why, why ask those questions, why, 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 why are we having these outbreaks of mm-hmm. these so-called bad um, uh, bacteria? Then, then a series of whys would exactly get us back to, well, we're actually stuffing up the environment with all these chemicals. So, oh, hang on, what a. How's this for an idea? Why don't we look at that as opposed to irradiating all the food at the other end of it? No, that'd be too that'd be too sensible. Well, we wouldn't be able to put fertilizer inputs in, chemical inputs in. You wouldn't be able to do, you know, you wouldn't have food survive for three, four, five, six, eight weeks. Who knows how long food irradiated is going to survive for? Um, and it's let's face it, this is big ag. This is about finances, this is about money, this is not about the health of humans. And so Food Standards Australia New Zealand asked for submissions and so I put a submission in and I basically said, it's all very well and good to say, yeah, the nutrients don't go down that much, but how do you know what it's going to do to the microbiome? Mm. Considering that the soil microbes on our food help feed our microbes in our gut. If you have a sterile lettuce, the likelihood of you not being able to di- digest that lettuce is far greater than if you jo- mm. go and pick a lettuce from my garden mm. and just go and eat it. You know, I don't I don't wash them. If, unless there's dirt on them, I'll throw that off, you know, give a bit of water on it. But that has soil-based microbes on it. And because my soil hasn't had any chemicals on it, for as long as I've had it, and we're going on my sixth year of having this, as long as it doesn't have those, I know that I have the best microbes mm. in my soil. Hey, I, I, I want to ask you about this. <laughs> How's my show? You can't <laughs> ask me questions. I'm not prepared for this. <laughs> Can, before you do, yeah. um, Cindy, could you pour another cap of that delicious uh, I will. Uh, licorice, app, um, apple mint, um, what were the other two ones? Lemongrass, Lemongrass and kaffir lime. lime. Yeah, it's the it's the kaffir lime that does it. Yeah, it's pretty good. Still bloody hot too, <laughs> even with your tea cosy wrapped around your mic. Um, yeah, well, it question. is thirty something degrees. I know. No, it's just so pleasant here though. It's, um, mm. it's beautiful. Um, not as hot as I thought it was going to be. Um, yeah, far away, far and ready. I've just given myself enough thinking time there. Good, good. Preempting your question. Um, so at the moment I'm seeing um, a lot of people talking about that farmers who re- 
farm in regenerative terms can sell carbon credits to people mm-hmm. that are not so much about about you know what's happening. Um, yeah, I've been wanting to ask you that question. Is mm. that a tr- is that true? Is that what's happening? So what's happening? I think what you're asking is well, I'll tell you what I know that um, for f- uh, and I've been following the carbon trading environment oh, for at least fifteen years and haven't ventured into it yet because for a number of reasons, mainly because it sort of seemed to chop and change a lot, but but primarily there didn't seem to be a very clear path um, for farmers. And this is early, this is my, my thoughts earlier that towards a system that is understood and is simple and is cheap mm. because as far as I'm aware, it's it's still very expensive to do. If you want to get the sort of the the required baseline carbon measurements on your farm, almost regardless of size, because you still need a certain amount of baseline measurements to be taken, we're talking thousands of dollars, tens of thousands of dollars to get what would comply as, no, now we know you, what your baseline is, then as we go into the future, you can keep measuring and then we can say, oh, what's, what's improved? So it's been expensive to get into. Also, the sort of um, the levels or, or the tiers of, of, of the credit system and, and, you know, that has been unclear to me, probably not to everyone, but it's sort of been um, somewhat confusing unless you've got a lot of time to dig into that. And also, I guess, I've also had a bit of a problem about the commoditisation of carbon. Mm. And that's not to say I won't... And I had a conversation with a fellow the other day um, about this and on the back of um, uh, Wilmot cattle company selling um, a considerable amount of, uh, well, I don't know, a considerable amount of carbon credits, as it were, to Microsoft in a, in a deal, which I think is, it, it, it's that's great because it's sort of set a new benchmark or it's sort of got people talking. In any event, it's got people talking, and I know they've been inundated with questions. If it gets people talking about that um, and looking into it, I think it's a good thing. What I'm, What I want what I'm going to do and what I want other people to think about if they're looking at this is probably don't make it your primary reason to farm. You know, if your, if your primary mo- motivation is to, oh, I, you know, if I can raise car- soil carbon, I want to make some, get some credits out of this, it's probably the one, wrong one to look at it. I would be saying, um, sure, that's a thing you can look at and do, but maybe make the building of soil and the, the quality and the quantity of soil um, uh, a primary objective to produce better food mm. and to improve the environment and and, and create a cleaner environment. And if you are you know if you are in that in that effort um, building carbon that you can then feel like you can trade, do that. But I just I just and there's a lot of agents in the system there as well, middlemen who are part of that system. <laughs> Not unlike the water situation where people have water um, rights or, or don't. Some people get that they're stripped away from them. But, you know, the selling and buying of, of, of water and the agents in the middle who are profiting from that enormously and the farmers are sort of, you know, a bit like the food system. You know, it's funny how these things are very mm. – these systems are, you know, in parallel. They're working in parallel. You know, probably too many middlemen, probably different agendas, um, people not doing it for necessarily all the – good intention of the world it's mm-hmm. yeah so um i'm still looking at it and i'm going to have some more conversations about how we can um as it were leverage our natural capital because it is a, you know these things will start appearing on people's balance sheets and i think it's important they do because then the banks can look at it and go okay he's got this much cash in the bank that many cows in the paddock 
what's the value of the carbon in the ground that he's put there. Mm. That is an asset and it's, a, and it's a value. But, you know, it's how we use it. And there's also the question of, well, if you go to a drought and all you change, you know, management or something and it goes backwards, well, do you then go the government money or somewhere? And the last mm. thing I'll say on it, because I'm rambling mm. a little bit, but I'm no. just, I'm quite, it's very topical is, you know, businesses that are claiming um, carbon neutrality, as it were, farm businesses, um, which in theory might be right, but then when you read a bit deeper and, and they're actually offsetting their carbon by planting trees in India, that to me <laughs> sort of, you know, I guess complies and it sort of in, in, in the theory makes sense, but like I would suggest why aren't those businesses actually just um, planting trees on their own place? Like why can't they have a self-contained system where, okay, I'm bur- burning diesel, I'm um, hopefully sequestering carbon anyway, so that's adding to it. Um, and but to offset that the carbon they're emitting on farm, let's 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 sequester that on farm. And I just think it's a, you know someone doing that in India by planting trees over there, nice for that part of the world maybe, but it's just it sort of gets away from the whole intention of this kind of thing. Mm. Does that make mm. sense? Yeah, no, it makes a lot of sense. I've just been hearing about it, and I when you have a husband who's a budget king. Then you ask questions like this. Budget king. <laughs> the budget king. Oh. Howie. <laughs> he'll be he'll be here soon going, How much power did you bloody use on that on that machine of his? <laughs> he said to me one day, he wants a boat. Mm. And he says the farm's like a boat. <laughs> oh. Why do you have one you only have two good days? No, is it the day you buy it, the day you sell sell it? Uh, no, he just you know, because it's not you know, I bought it for one thing and then we, we started to do what we're doing with it, which is my love. It's absolutely my love mm. and it's my son's love and, and, and my husband loves it too. But, um, you know, this hasn't been a cheap exercise by any means. Mm. And to do what we've been doing and, the, and putting in more fencing and I've applied for grants, by the way, and got them and because we're trying to repair the riparian area, it's mm-hmm. fill of, filled with privet. Yeah. So as well as doing the cows and the chickens and the, all the fruit trees and the gardens, we're also trying to get that forest, you know, that rainforest mm. back to the way it should be. So, yeah, he just he's, – he's sometimes – well, he's, he has a role to play. Yeah. And he's set by sounds doing a very good job. Yeah. <laughs> it was great to meet him very briefly the other yeah. day, too, just quietly. Um, yeah, so Carbon, you, you were just saying how you sort of step, you, you know, understanding it or you're hearing it. What, what are your thoughts on it? I didn't really have any thoughts. Mm. I, I just, I, I read about the Microsoft guy um, or the. The farmer that sold to Microsoft, and I kind of went, well, "Why did he do that? Why didn't he sell to an Australian company?" I don't know. That, that was my first question, mm. and then I started to go, "Well, here, where this whole thing started was that we haven't used chemicals. You know, this is all hand done. Mm. You know, if there is a primary, as I've been told to look at them, and then we question the primary and why is it there and what do we have to do? And instead of like I watch people across the road and next door and they get the spray gun out and they just spray. So I kind of go, you put the work in and you put the effort in. Um, but I do understand your whole thing with carbon credits and, and the water as well because, you know, the water rights is quite scary for some farmers who don't have them and they have to buy them and they have to purchase the water and I have seen that. 
So I don't want it to become a commodity like that, but I'd like to be thanked for what we're doing here. That's mm. what I'd like. Mm. Well, I mean, that, and, and that, you know, I guess that, that thanks can come in many different forms, whether that's a financial reward, as it were, because you're measuring and um, – uh, there's a mob um, called Lander Market who we are we are members of their co-op um, and um, Tony Hill heads that up and he is a they're an organisation which basically you, know, you sign up as a as a member of the co-op they they turn up once a year they'll do some measurements um, uh, there are there I think every four or five years they sort of pretty serious and comprehensive measurements and every every year in between um, there are um, monitoring of your diversity of your pasture and so basically it's an environmental monitoring um, uh, or verification system and that um, does two things. It, one will identify if your carbon is going up, so how you then can leverage that is mm. is one thing you can do. The other thing too, as a producer of food, that um, those who are interested in 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 branding or putting the logo of Lander Market on their product, so that people can um, in buying that product support the farmer who has bothered to do that. So that's a reward, as it were. Now, what the price premium there is, we sort of it's still up in the air, but um, there are. Organisations and opportunities for people to um, be rewarded in a number of different ways for what mm. what they're doing. You know, I, th- I think all these certifications um, can become quite complicated. Like I'm in the food industry, so I see the organic certification, and I've seen where the organic certification has gone, and I'm not happy with it, especially mm. when it comes to packaged foods. As far as farming goes, I don't really understand it. I don't want to get organic certification here. I know what I'm doing. This is just for me. This is for our family. You know, and my family's growing. I'm having grandchildren and they all have partners and and so, and then their friends all seem to want to congregate here as well. We have many, we had a really good Australia Day party here. Well, it's actually the Saturday. It's when the top 100 are on. (laughs) Triple J. (laughs) Triple J. So we had a triple J party on the Saturday and they were just camping, kids camping everywhere. Everywhere, and I just I said to my husband, "This is why we did this." It's community and family. It is community and family, and it's not just our family. It's their friends that have really become involved in this, Mm. and they ask me questions, and they want to come and work on the land, and they want to spend some time here. So it's, I yeah. All you got to do is I found is dangle that carrot, like just go Mm. come and have a look, and go for a walk in the Centropic little strip there, and eat this bit of lettuce or whatever that like. And it's, that's a wonderful thing about this, you know, this generation because we're so old. But you know, like the, the, the younger younger people, because they are curious and just give them the whiff of it, and they love this sort of stuff, you know. And the and the other, I guess it's you know, and it's quite often, more than often, it's non-farmers they haven't got paradigms to break. Mm. You know, they're just going, oh, okay, cool, cool spot, good view, feels good, yummy food, nice people. What more do you want? Mm. You know, that's mm. that's all you just – and you don't have to bash them over here with anything. No. No, you don't. And when they see the results of their own health, mm. that's, you know, like because we're, we're healing the land with the – looking at the soil, making sure the animals and the plants that grow on this soil are, are healed. And by doing that and then when we consume them, then we become healed. And that's what – people don't realise. When you go into a supermarket and there's an organic certification or a gluten-free certification or what else is there? Vegan certification seems to be the biggest at the moment. Like there's these certifications everywhere. But what they're not looking at is the ingredients and how are those ingredients grown. 
that to me is more important than a certification. So people know what I'm like. They know I'm a till of a hun when it comes to food. <laughs> so when I say it's come from my farm. Attila's but- wife. <laughs> Attila's wife. Doesn't yeah. mean how he is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> He's the till of the hun. <laughs> I'm the wife. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, even my local organic store, you know, she will buy from me mm. and because she knows what I'm like. Mm. If I said I'm not certified organic, not she says, yeah, but I know what you're like. And she will put from the Changing Habits Farm, mm. not certified. She'll put chemical spray free. And, you know, I just think when you look at the ingredients of the food and, and when you're turning over that label and that packaging and that plastic or whatever it is mm. and you read those ingredients and if they don't look like grandma's recipe or great-grandma's recipe really, then – don't touch it. Put it down. Put it down. Mm. And that goes with salt. You know, even our salts have got um, free-flowing agents and anti-caking agents and potassium iodate for the iodine. It's completely stripped of all its minerals. It's left with sodium and chloride. So from the smallest thing like salt all the way, you know, to the cattle that we we have and we breed, we need to know how these guys are or how this is being harvested, how they're being grown, what, you know, what soils they're on, what food they're, they're eating or consuming and how they're processed. Because if we don't know that, then we're part of a problem, not part of a solution. So when we start to realise and get back to going to the farmer's markets, going directly to the farmer, like I love what you're doing, you know, like I know that your pigs, we can buy your pigs direct. If, if we want to, or we can go to a butcher that you're recommended um, to go there because that's who you sell to. That's what I want to know now. I want to know who's my farmer. So across, I can't kill my cows. <laughs> I love my cows too much. Neither can I. <laughs> I just have a terrible time. So just across there, mm. there's um, a, a wonderful farmer and he has Angus mm. and I go into town and buy his Angus because <laughs> I haven't met the cow. <laughs> You're offsetting. But his Angus are grass-fed. Grass-fed. All above board. Yep. Yeah. Yep. He does it the right way. He, he does regen farming. It's not organic um, as far as certified, but mm. I know his principles. I've read about him, and, and so I go into town and buy his beef. Well, you know, that's, I mean, that's a good point, though, because we're not certified either. You know, we're biodynamic. Um, we, you know, make our own biodynamic stuff and, you know, not, not using chemicals and all those things. And, you know, and Hamish Mackay, as you know, and mm. knows our biodynamic causes, he, he was, he was instrumental in the early days of setting up some of the certification systems in Australia. And he is not dissimilar to you, Cindy, saying it's not what it used to be or what it should be, you know, and, and, and my limited, um, uh, experience with it and understanding is, Really, that it certifies a the inputs, you know, like the set of circumstances and the practices that make up the food. So, oh no, I'm not using chemical, or I'm yeah, I'm throwing a bit of compost around, or whatever. I'm I'm not buying glyphosate from the, the you know, it goes through the mm-hmm. accounts, makes you not buying chemical from the agent in town. But in no certification system I'm aware of. At, at, at this point, do they test the product? What pops out the other end of it? Mm. You know, they're not scanning to see what the nutrients or the chemical load is. So it's not, it's a cert- certifying inputs, not the outputs. And as consumers, aren't we interested in the outputs? Like, you know, if, if there's no chemical on the plant, on the, on the, on your apple, well, it wasn't, clearly wasn't used on the farm. So that's that tick, tick that box. Mm. You know, if it's, if it's, if it has a, um, you know, high bricks um, level or it's, you know, you can look at the numbers and it's, it's, it's nutritious apple. In some ways, it doesn't matter what they're doing at the other end. 
you mm. know, because you know the output, the, the out, outcome is is good. Mm. Um, so a system, a certification system that actually certifies the output, not the input. I reckon that's that's something I would I would look at. You know, one day. And, and that's the problem with food irradiation. Even though they're looking at irradiating the food and then what they do is they look at the nutrient content, mm. but that nutrient content might be there, but wh- what are we getting? They're not mm. looking at that. They're not going, if you eat that food from that apple tree over there that, you know, that I love and talk to and, and get really excited when the blooms come out. <laughs> <laughs> Count the blooms. Where is it? He's know. right down in the corner with the, um, oh, the mesh it. over it. Yeah, oh, cool. the, the mesh has got to come off, but it's mm. got it's blooming again. Yeah, you know, we, we just finished that apple season. It's a summer apple, and we just finished it, and now it's blooming it's again. again. It's, it's going again. It's going again. It's that love language. It's it is. I, I do talk to it. Mm. <laughs> I talk to all my plants. How we know what you say to it? <laughs> <laughs> Don't tell him. <laughs> it's blooming again. Must be good. But then. When I consume that and it's got the microbes on it, you know, and I'm feeding mm. my microbes and I'm getting the nutrients because those microbes are allowing me to absorb those nutrients and use those nutrients. When you irradiate a food, we haven't tested that. Mm. We haven't tested if there's no microbes in it or on it or near it and you consume it, what are the nutrients you get from it? And that's the question I asked for Sands. In my submission to them. And I tell you, that submission wasn't easy. Even as a nutritionist and understanding this industry for 40 years, doing that submission, um, I, I actually put one submission in and then they said, you didn't put your name, you didn't put your address and phone number on it, we won't take your submission. And um, so I just resubmitted again and did a longer one because I had time to really think mm. about it because I only gave you a certain time. And I said, well, just in case you don't do this one, then do this one. <laughs> um, and they took my submission. So hopefully they'll, you know, they'll listen to not just me but other people. Are you looking for more information to assist you on your regenerative journey? We've created an online community of supporters with exclusive access to interview transcripts, live online Q&A sessions with Charlie and his interviewees, as well as the opportunity to be interviewed on the show yourself. If you would like to be part of this community or would simply like to contribute to the development of the podcast series, please make your way to patreon.com forward slash the regenerative journey podcast. We look forward to you becoming a member of the regenerative journey community. Let's get back to this week's episode. I want to go back, Cindy, to because um, we got straight into, into the thick of it, which is fantastic. I want to just ask you um, back in your earlier years when you were finding your feet in this space, was there a moment? I mean, the Mr. Rutherford story is wonderful. That's clearly, you know. Uh, I'd imagine a point in time where there's like you were not vindicated with like you know there's I'm changing lives here you know mm. changing habits changing lives was there any any other spots any <clears throat> sort of turning points where yeah you were profoundly you either knew your purpose or you you you, you know things were much clearer you know, was it a conversation or something you read or, I don't know an apple you ate <laughs> was there something that sort of stands out as being a significant you know turning point. I um, had written my book, Changing Habits, Changing Lives, and I was asked to speak in Caloundra at the Happy Slimmers. Now, this was probably the 1990s, late 1990s, I say it was. It was before my husband and I always define our lives between the, the time we went travelling around Australia for two years with the kids and the time we didn't. So 
before and after. That was the. And, yeah, that was our <laughs> defining time. I think I did it just before, and mm-hmm. I went to Happy Slimmers, and I don't know maybe it was when we gotten back. It was when we gotten back, and I went to and spoke to Happy Slimmers, and there was about 130 people in the room, and I started to talk about you know the food industry and how a McDonald's burger, if you leave it on the shelf for two years, it'll still look like a McDonald's burger. It just dehydrates a little bit, but not too bad. And I got told by a guy who owned McDonald's, if you put it in a a microwave, spray it with water and heat it, it'll be fine. Good as gold. (laughs) He told me this. It's better. Yes, he tastes better. (laughs) And And I had people standing up throwing their pens and pencils down basically and going, oh, this is BS, walking out on me. And so I could barely get through this talk, you know, like I'm in my Mm. 30s. I could barely get through this talk. And at the end of it, I went, I'm in my mind going, that's it. I'm not doing this anymore. These Mm. people don't want to know. I don't care. I'm just going to be, it's going to be okay. It's just me and my family. I don't need to do this. I got three little kids. I'm not doing this anymore. But the world had another, another thing for me to do. So... I'm walking through the supermarket feeling very sorry for myself, just collecting some food for um, for dinner. And that, that night. That night, before I go home. And I run into a friend, and, and she works for Lisa Curry. I don't, you know, okay, she works for Lisa Curry. And sometimes I wonder, do people know who Lisa is anymore? You know, because she was my era. Yeah, totally. Not so much um, the mine, younger I'm era. Oh, mine too. Yeah, and your era. <laughs> <laughs> So Legend. she works for Lisa, mm. and I told her what happened. I said, I just think I'm going to quit. Anyway, Lisa rings me, and she said, don't you dare quit. You know, mm. you can't do that. She said, um, I was just speaking to this guy, and he was putting a seminar together. It was a five-day seminar. It was $5,000 to go to it. I'd heard about it, I and I just felt I couldn't afford that at that point. So Lisa rang him and said, this is what's happened to this girl. She's got a book. You know, she's she really wants to be a speaker. He gave me two free tickets. So Howard and I went and we listened to stories like mine, I guess, that, you know, you think you're doing the right thing and then, you know, people just go, you're wrong and they throw they throw pins down and they walk out on you. And, and I, I guess that was a defining moment of me going, I'm quitting, to the universe saying, no, you're not. Mm. And every time I thought I would quit because of this, and I even this week away, I've been listening to the news and going, what, what, what is happening on the planet? You mm. know, why do people not see this craziness that's happening? All we have to do is get the soil better, start growing our own food, getting healthy, and we can resist viruses. Mm. You know, do you know that? Because we've been doing it for millions. Well, <laughs> humans have been doing it hundreds of thousands of years, whatever they reckon. Exactly. Mm. Exactly. And then you just want to go crawl into your farm like this and and just be a farmer mm. and do nothing else. And you know, and that, that, just on that, I mean, that's I guess the the um, the opportunity and the the privilege we have to have that space, which is reflected in the number of people moving out of Victoria up into Byron Bay and everywhere because it's going. I want a piece of <laughs> land and not a unit mm. but that is it's a real it's a real privilege isn't it and responsibility to um to be stewarding land and being um able to have one's own sanctuary which is clearly you know what you're doing here you know mm. and it, which gives me some hope like if everyone's sort of didn't have that reaction and decided or oh, waiting for a vaccine or a pill or something and you know and didn't respond 
in that way, that, that would have been disaster. This is like, oh, I really well given up. We're just going to wait for the pharmaceutical people to turn up with something that's going to save us. Mm. You know, but the people wanted to go and grow their food and get away and, you know, obviously helped by the fact that technology's improved and we can zoom all over the world now. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's a, do you want to talk about that? The current pandemic? Yeah, yeah I, I would. I, I, I find that our government is, um, it, you know, they're saying sanitize, stay 1.5 metres away and wait for the vaccine and put a mask on. And the science doesn't show that that works. We know that um, the people that are most vulnerable are the ones with chronic illness. So the elderly or people with chronic disease, mm. so heart disease, diabetes or obesity are the ones that are going to be most vulnerable. The healthy and the fit are not vulnerable. They've shown this. A year of statistics has shown this. In the beginning, we didn't know, but we know now. So I I just find our government not talking. Why did we not close McDonald's down? Why did we not close Kentucky Fried Chicken down? Why? Bottle, bottle shops, cricket games. Exactly. Yeah. Why did we... Why did we close people down into their homes instead of saying, you know what, we've all got to start cooking our own food, we've all got to do mm. this? I don't get the narrative. I really don't understand it. I feel like I'm a, um, a what is it, a, a, a peg in a circle or a circle in a peg, whatever. I just feel like. A round peg in a square. That's what I feel like. No, is it square peg in a round hole? Round hole. <laughs> that's what I feel like. I talk to people and I go, just get your body well yeah. and you'll be fine. Don't triple mask, like is the narrative at the moment. How do you triple mask? Is that Put like one, a pla- two down and then three? Oh, it's not, it's not like um, one mask and then like a plastic shield and then a helmet or something. That's triple, isn't it? <laughs> no, it's triple doing mask. the mask. And then you hear, uh, if you're listening to the American politics, you hear Fauci going, well, it makes common sense. If one's not working, let's do two and three. And then you hear this, <laughs> another guy in, in the American politics going, well, we know if you put two on, then what happens is you blow it out this way. And <laughs> it's just, it's like Well, the watching- politician's doing those talks with no, no, no masks on at all. <laughs> I mean, so so they're not even sticking to their own sort yeah. of thing, which, yeah, from what I've read and seen and heard is um, not helping at all. And, 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 and in some respects is probably worse because all the gunk gets, you know, you, you, you walk around with these germ, um, well, there's good and bad germs, of course, but these sort of, you just absor- you just walk around with... You increase a viral load. If you have a viral load in there anyway, it's just going to increase the viral load. That's yeah. what they're saying because you're breathing it back in instead mm. of expelling it out. And and you become a, no, a mouth breather instead of a nose breather. Mm. And, you know, James Nestor wrote an incredible book last year called Breath. Yeah. And he yeah. explains by plugging his nose up and breathing through his mouth what it did to his bloods, what it did to his sleep, his apnea, sleep apnea, his snoring, what it did to his health in 10 days, mm. in 10 days of just plugging his nose up. So when you've got that mask on you, you are mouth breathing, you are not nose breathing unless you put it down here and then what's the point? <laughs> <laughs> I also um, read something about um, they did some studies and it was interesting they did, even did these studies last year early on in the in the, in the the whole COVID show where um, breastfeeding mums with masks on the babies that first three months of their lives are looking at their mum and, you know, there's communication association and they're sort of working out facial um, movements and everything. So a mum breastfeeding with a mask on, the babies are like going, what is that thing up there? I can't work it out. And in this vital period of their life, mm. they're losing that training. Which has implications, they 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 think mm. forever. Well, we do know, I know with food, mm. um, 
when the mother is pregnant and the first six months of their life, you are imprinting on that child what that child needs in order to survive in this world. Mm. So if you're sitting there eating McDonald's, mm. then that child knows that McDonald's will be – it's an imprint. It's like a survival mechanism. This setting is anthropology. The, setting you're setting the standard. Mm, so, yeah. And it's the smell. It's, the, it's what they can smell around you. So if you sit there eating incredible food, that's an imprint for them for the rest of their lives. They seek that food out. That they will seek that food out. But if you think that they don't know what you're doing, mm. and that imprint when we look at it in anthropological terms was survival. Yeah. That was survival. They knew Except by smell, taste, what they could eat and what they mm. couldn't eat. They were also told, but it's like an imprinting that six months. And so that that, that go for the for I guess um, drugs and you know prescription and non prescription, also alcohol, wouldn't it? I imagine most definitely. So we also imprint in our children medications. Mm. So my dad was a pharmacist, and the only people he was giving people drugs or drugs to were people usually that were old 70s and 80s mm. that was his market when back in the 50s this was like 1952 to 1956 7 he was a pharmacist in New Zealand and then he became a chiropractor and he learned in, and the reason he became a chiropractor was because he met one of his clients in the street that used to come in for Pepto-Bismo. He had indigestion. And he goes, why are you not coming in for the Pepto-Bismo anymore? And he goes, oh, the quack up the road fixed me. And he goes, who's the quack up the road? And it was his chiropractor. So my dad went and met him and just learned all about chiropractic, left everything basically, became a painter for a year to make enough money to go to school in the U.S. And that's where he met my mum in Iowa because that's where um, chiropractic was. So he came, like he came out of chiropractic, understanding medicine and understanding vitalism, so mechanism and vitalism. And so he brought us up with not one medication. So mm. we were not allowed to have antibiotics, and that was the beginning of antibiotics. We weren't allowed to have anything that took away pain. So no bongellos, nothing like that, because he said if the body gets its little chances in life to understand infection, to understand fevers, to understand um, pain, then you'll, as an adult, be able to understand all those in a greater amount. So the pains, the infections, the fevers will all your body will know exactly what to do. Mm. So now we're in a state where our kids are drugged from the day they're born virtually from the day they're born. So a child's first pain that they feel is their teeth. What do we do? We throw Bonjello on them so they can't feel that pain. So we do this. Oh, take this pill. It'll make you feel better. Mm. He'd have this antibiotic. Mm. It'll make you feel better. So they get to 16 and someone says, oh, take this little pill. It'll make you feel better. Mm. And these are the drugs on the street. And my thing is this, if we don't fix the drugs in the home, we're never going to fix the problem in the street. It starts in the home. It starts in the home. Like most things. So I'm 60. Mm. I've never had a pill. Get never out of here. I've had an antibiotic. I've never had a Panadol. I've never had any form of medication. Not you can one. T- you can tell, um, just quietly. <laughs> <laughs> Why? Because I'm hyper. <laughs> no, no, you're vital. It's vital. If you said what, 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 what makes Cindy set her apart of vitality? Well, my, my kids are the same. They're brought mm. up the same way. And every, every, I remember my son broke his collarbone at 13. Uh, I think it was his left on a football game. And we got him to the hospital and um, the nurse said, what's your pain? And between 1 and 10. And my son says, 8. And he go, she goes, oh, I'll just get you some, some medication. And he says, 
no, I can handle it. Mm. This is a 13-year-old. And mm. that's when I thought, we've taught them well. We've done the right, yeah. done the right thing. His first um, medication he ever took was he broke his scaphoid in a motorbike accident, which is apparently a very painful break. And he didn't sleep all night. And he, he said to me, Mum, I just didn't sleep all night. I'm in so much pain. And I said, well, maybe this is the time we... We do take medications. Mm. So I had to ring all my friends at 7 in the morning. I've got to find a paracetamol or, a, or something like that. That is spelled par- Panadol. <laughs> had to get them saying. So I find a friend that's got some in her house. I go to her house. I get it and I go, okay, matey, let's give it a go. It's the lowest dose we can possibly do. They say it lasts two to four hours. So we give it to him and he's like 21, 22. And I give it to him and about 12 hours later, like it's nighttime and he goes, Oh, I mustn't have had the pain, and you know, I don't feel it anymore. And that lasted him about 14 hours before he started to feel the pain again. Mm. So most people will use a Panadol so often that it only survives them two, three hours, maybe an hour what, at the that, most. That's what's that? Um, uh, there's a word for that, isn't it? It's like a, it's a, it's a, it's almost like not. It's a tolerance is the wrong word. It's a. Um, the body just doesn't. It, it, it's so it gets used so to used having, to it. It yeah. doesn't. It needs more and more, needs more and more to get more the same and more effect. And more. Yeah. So that's he took that one. Um, my daughter, my other two daughters have never taken anything, and they're in thirty-one, twenty-nine, and twenty-seven. Mm. And um, I have one daughter that's pregnant, and she will bring up her child exactly the same way. But don't get me wrong, medication has its place mm. because my uncles who had hemophilia would not. Well, they wouldn't have survived. Um, the life they could have. So before the drug came out that they could take, which was factor eight, whenever they had a bleed, they would have to go to the hospital. And they could be in the hospital for three weeks. When factor eight came, they could be injected with factor eight and they didn't have to go to hospital. The bleed would stop immediately. It was a miracle. But then it became their death sentence as well because Bayer were the people that were making factor eight from plasma. Bayer knew that HIV or something was in the plasma, but failed to tell the hemophiliac, um, you know, family in a, in in the whole of USA, and so my uncles were infected with HIV as a wow. result of the thing that actually was saving them, which was the factor eight. Wow! And they all got HIV. They were all given AZT, which was the drug of choice at the time. This is in the what are we eighties? We're no. looking at the eighties and nineties. No. So they were all given AZT. And every single one of them, as they got AZT, you saw them go downhill. So AZT was a chemotherapy drug that killed the patient before it killed the cancer. So the, yeah. Oh, it wasn't. It was a cancer drug, um, not a chemotherapy, but a cancer drug. And um, so they thought, oh, we'll, we'll use it on HIV. Um, but I actually think that that's what killed my uncles, not mm. AIDS, as as we've all been told. You know, I can only tell you what I've seen anecdotally, but that's the way I I saw things, that they died from the drug. And now that drug, you know, I don't know what it's used for now. I have no idea. Um, but Probably still out there used for something totally different. But that's not that's not an uncommon story, is it, that, you know, a drug is used to um, treat, as it were, in inverted commas, a disease or an ailment or illness, and, you know, the side effects are often the things that... that um, that are the worst. That's actually the worst. Mm. And they go, oh, no, he didn't die. No, he didn't die of the, that disease. He died of something else. He died of three others that mm. the, the bloody treatment actually brought on. Mm. So I lost all my uncles, two of their wives and one of my cousins, all died of AIDS 
as it was, as we were told. But what I found really interesting is when I talked to Dr. Don Huber and we. Yes, go, let's do him. So Don Huber is an absolute specialist when it comes to what glyphosate um, is doing to plants and animals. Mm. And I was interviewing him for my nutrition academy. and I, I, he talked to me. He said, we finally figured out how glyphosate works. He said... When was this? Just a This was only a couple of years ago. Okay, yep. We finally figured out how exactly how it works. So what it does is it stops the shikimate pathway. Mm. And that shikimate pathway produces the amino acids for its strength. It produces folic acid. It produces... Um, co- coenzyme Q and it produces enterobactin, which carries the iron. A so, reasonably important. A pretty uh, important pathway, thing for yeah. the plants. <laughs> so he says what happens is it's not the glyphosate that kills the plant. Mm. It makes the plant vulnerable to the pathological bacteria that are in the ground that the glyphosate has basically killed all the good bacteria and left the mm. pathological, but it le- allows the pathological bacteria to come into the plant and kills the plant. So it's an indirect. Well, he says it gives it. Wait for this. He says it gives it AIDS, acquired immune deficiency syndrome. Wow. And as he said that to me, I went. Bingo. Oh, my gosh. That's what happened to my uncles. Mm. They were given acquired immune deficiency syndrome. And now, and I was fighting AZT and what drug they were being given. And now I'm fighting glyphosate and Roundup and how it's on our, and our food supply and what it's doing to the human body and to the microbiome. And basically I'm fighting the same fight that I was in the 90s. Now it's just acquired immune deficiency syndrome given to the plant, the pathological bacteria take over and it dies because of the, those pathological bacteria. And I just started to go, there's a reason. Like, like I said to you, there's something that's pushing me to do these things. It always, someone always says something and I go, Okay, I'm going to keep going. Okay, I'm going to keep going. All right, I need to spread this information. I need to get the word out. And and Don Huber came into my life and, and said that to me. And I went, now I understand why glyphosate has become such a big thing to me, you know. And it's a big thing, well, and that's its, that's its effect or that's the pathway or that's its modality in the soil and plants. Um, I guess the, 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 the you know, the addition, additional craziness about that is we then go and eat those plants. Glyphosate is still present somewhat. does exactly the same thing in our guts. It does. It basically kills the, yeah. the beneficial bacteria in our gut that make tryptophan, tyrosine and phenylalanine, which are the three am- ar- aromatic amino acids that are required by our body to make neurotransmitters. So now we're having all these neurological problems, ataxia, mm. um, Parkinson's, multiple sclerosis, um, more and more Alzheimer's, dementia. All of these are attacking our nervous system because we don't have the neurotransmitters, because we don't have the precursors, because they're not in the plants, they're not being made by our bacteria. So we're lacking in these. And and as a result, you know, we're seeing a chronic disease problem that we've never seen before. So if we go back to the 60s, the chronic disease rate across the board in Australia was 4%, from zero right through to 90. Now, our chronic disease mm. rate within our children is 38 to 40%, in our children alone, up to the age of 17. And it's not just one chronic disease, it's many chronic diseases. And then you reach 65, the chances of you having a chronic disease is 80%. So 80% of the population have a chronic disease and everything in between. 
How many medications are people taking for rheumatoid arthritis, autoimmune diseases are off the chart, mm. heart disease, cancer, cancer? Mm. I just, you know, like I, I just look at cancer and I just think every second person, every family is touched by it. My mum and my sister both died from cancer. My sister died at 46. My mother died at 69. Um, and I look at my mother in Iowa being sprayed with DDT. Her hair was sprayed with DDT because that was what they did. Um, they did it. They sprayed the hair with DDT because it was like a flea, um, oh, get rid of fleas and nits. Lice. Yeah, lice. Got rid of that. So my mum my was one of 11 and they always had something happening in the family. <laughs> so DDT mm. was safe. It's good for you. Mm. All the cornfields were sprayed with it. Um, you know, it was... It was a disaster, and I figured my mum, first of all, she was sprayed with arsenic and lead, so that was the the year after she was born. They sprayed arsenic and lead everywhere for the locust plague in Iowa and 14 other states of the U.S. Then in 45, DDT came, so my mum would have been sprayed heavily with DDT. If you look at that whole family, you know, hemophilia started for the first time in that family. Every one of those family members are dead bar three, so my mum would only be in her 80s, like early 80s mm. right now. She was young. She was young. So then my mum got pregnant with my sister. This is my assumption, remember. Yeah. So my mum got pregnant um, with my sister. And for the first three months, this is in Iowa, for the first three months she couldn't eat. So the fat reserves that she had, which would have been filled with Full DDT, oh. would have been dumped onto my sister. My sister was always little, always sick, never well, um, diagnosed with five autoimmune disease at 23 and dead by 46. And my mum dies. Mum does everything right, eats right, eats organic, does everything right, and yet dies of lung she had cancer. That, she had that exposure. She had the exposure. And so I just can't, you know, and I just, I have to work hard to be well because mm. I know that I have this history behind me that, you know, I, I don't have a great genetic or a great history of, of the family. So I have to do the best that I can and I have to eat the best. And And I guess that's what drives me is, is what's happened to my family and why I'm against the drug companies and why I'm against what's happening right now. Why are we not pushing everybody to grow victory gardens like they did in Second World War? Yeah. Why are we not asking everybody to grow their own food? Why is this not a part of this whole narrative? When's the last time you heard one of the politicians in the last 12 months just in Australia, you know, or the world really, and going, you know what, maybe we should look at our diet or yeah. maybe we should eat something, you know, the, the word our immune, you know, immunity or immune system um, or building immunity just doesn't happen. It's all fear mongering. Yeah. But when you when you have when you realise how strong you can be and how how you can resist disease and when you understand the innate intelligence of the human body and the innate intelligence of that soil that knows what to do when a weed comes up, I don't spray it. I know it's telling me something. I've just yeah. got to figure out what it's telling yeah. me. Yeah. Charlie, learn, I'm just gonna to walk you down the back paddock. <laughs> <laughs> listen and watch. What are they saying? Observe. Totally. As Charles Massey tells us to do, he yeah. says, be observant. Observe. And yeah. I've had six years on here mm. and I, I I see the cycle of the of these. I had Jurassic Park. Now, you know, down the back paddock, I'm getting cobbler's peg. Why am I getting cobbler's? It wasn't here six years ago. Why is it coming now? So mm. I've got to ask that question. And Why, why, why? Why, why, why? So I observe and, and I do that with the human body. I, I watch the innate intelligence. Mm. 
given the right resources. So what are the right resources? Definitely food, purpose of life, connection with each other, touching each other is really important. Sunshine, like this whole sunshine thing just drives me like, you mean, right. you mean sunshine as in stay away, stay put away. your hat on, um, toxic sunscreen, yeah. whatever else, yeah. Yeah, I wrote, I wrote about that in my book in 98, back when mm. it was woo-woo, and now more people are beginning to understand. Sleep, the importance of sleep, the importance of breath. Mm. So every morning I have a routine. I get up, um, I meet friends, we go to the beach, we lay ourselves on the beach, you know, making sure that parts of our our ourselves are grounding Mm. we do a 40 minute breathing session we then strip off go swimming and swim not completely we do wear our dogs um (laughs) nude uh, no no, it doesn't work unless you're nude (laughs) (laughs) we swim the beach we then walk walk back in the sunshine and that's my that's that's my ritual Mm. it's my ritual then i go home and most of the food i get from here and um, I'll make something like lately I've been making Kata because my apples have been out. So Kata stands for coconut, almond, date and apple. And I just make up like a muesli with that. And, um, yeah, all the eggs, I'll, I'll make an omelet because I can make everything, you know, from, from here. So I do that. Then I work, um, and I love to write and I love to research. Mm. It's my greatest love. So I have a passion and that passion drives me to keep going and keep doing the things that I want to do. So these are the ingredients that give your body health. When you're lonely, you're not healthy. When you have no purpose, you're not healthy. When you're not eating the right foods, you're not healthy. When you don't see the sun, you're not healthy. When you don't sleep, you're not healthy. These are all factors and ingredients that are so important. It's not, I, you know, I used to think it was just nutrition, really. That's all we needed was good nutrition. Good Because yeah. <laughs> I, was, I was so involved in that. Mm. But as I, you know, as I have done four decades of that, I realized that there's just so much more. But the lifestyle that my parents gave me and my grandparents, you know, enabled me to have, I guess, um, made me realize that everything that I do that I love is all part of those ingredients. Mm. It's not just food. It's not, I mean, there's lots of parallels and, and I guess you, you being, having done the biodynamic workshop with us a couple mm. of months ago, you know, the there's a substance part of health you know, being the um, the apple and and the the enzymes and the 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 nutrients and the minerals and elements and everything in it, and there's also you know there's the biome around it. There's the unseen, which is sort of stepping slightly away from the science or the substance, and then there's there's so much more, isn't it? It's just like the person you're eating that apple with. Mm. You know, are you sitting enjoying the sunrise or the sunset, or are you hunched over a computer? Um, you know. Did you did you share yeah you know, did you share that with someone else or did you grow that yourself and that whole reverence for the for the process of of life that you have helped sort of um, you've nurtured I mean they're the they're the the less substance based and the more cosmic or the more energetic side of stuff that um, you know a lot of people would call a bit of spooky wawa but for me and clearly you and and others you know it's it's as important as you say as the oh that's an apple and it's going to taste good and it's nutritious like it's the whole it's the vibe isn't it <laughs> it, it is, is the vibe it's the vibe to quote <laughs> and it is it is the unseen and yeah. quantum 
um, physics has shown us what the un- unseen mm. is. You know, when What the Bleep came out in 2003 or around No, that What the time, Bleep came out. Oh. Was it 2003 or 2006? No, 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 I reckon it came out before that. Before that. I reckon it came out, I might be lying, in, 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 in was it 90, um, was it 97? Mm. Was it? It could have been. I know it was one of the first documentaries. I remember saw it in, a, in Sydney in a, in a, um, art housey independent cinema mm. somewhere, and just going, "What the hey? <laughs> crazy!" It might have been early two thousand. I can't remember, but it was bloody good. Well, it's interesting how I got this was all through energetics. I think how mm. I got the farm. Mm. I did have it written down since I was twenty one, but it wasn't happening. So um, I met this girl. Um, I was in Europe speaking, and she was speaking also, and she was speaking on manifesting, and she had the it was. Um, 10 Steps to Manifesting and I bought her book and I bought her videos I bought all everything and I decided right I'm going to do this and I started to do this manifesting and do the 10 steps and I would manifest something and I put a date on it and a month before the date it would happen and mm-hmm. I'd go wow how did that happen and I did this for quite a few years and then I went I'm going to go to her retreat so she was having a retreat in Greece I met my daughter over there went to this retreat went for five days I worked on getting this far. That was all I did. So who was this person? I mean, her name is Michelle Nielsen. Okay. And um, her book is Manifesting Matisse. Yeah, cool. So, um, I, you know, I, I went to her, her um, five-day workshop, it really was, and all I did was manifest this. And I got the manifest in there, and it was 50 acres. I got 60. It was in the hinterland. It was, um, I, I don't know, everything that I wrote down. I even had a photo, so I did pictures i cut out pictures and i had this picture of a gate and we found that gate and that gate um is your over dr- there your dream board it, my, it was a dream yeah, board cool. and that gate i found that gate on this mm, farm it was mm. like under some lantana and brogan found and i said oh, that's my gate and i pulled the picture out and there's that gate <laughs> so it was Love like it. i i just think that we don't understand the power of thought mm. so as you eat that apple that you're in so much awe mm. And I am in awe. I see what my fruit trees do, and I go, "How did you do that?" It's, it's pretty. It's amazing. It's incredible. The banana trees—they've <laughs> just gone nuts. Mm. So yeah, I'm. I'm with you. I just think we look at science, and we don't really understand. We might look at the practical part of it. We don't understand the esoteric that's happening behind it. What is it? The thoughts are thinking. You know, we we've seen. Um, what's his name? Masura Moto. In what the blade? Oh, yeah, yeah. We saw him. You know, he put those pictures on, on, on the, the, wa- on the water. on the water. Yeah, or the the Japanese writing on the water, so yeah. the water could read Japanese. Cleared but, pretty smooth. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so one Just, was love, uh, and one was I hate, hate. you, and yeah. and you saw the crystals, yeah. and you can't, you can't. Because there's science around that. It's like okay, micros- a microscope that mm. actually could see that, and it's a water crystal, so you can't mm. like make that up. Mm-mm. Pretty, pretty. Yeah, well, and I reckon it was two thousand three or four because I um, when what the bleep came out. Only because I was just thinking about it because I think it was the first one of the first movies I saw with Angelica, my wife. We weren't married then, but I think going to that movie might have made me think. Yeah, no, this chick's cool. <laughs> <laughs> she watches cool stuff. <laughs> but it was it did blow my mind. <laughs> it was. It was brilliant, and I watched it recently. I've just joined Gaia yeah. again, and what well, I saw, what the bleep, and I, I got to watch that again. And mm. I, it's. It's got a lot of good information in it, and and I realised it was because of watching that I fell for Joe Dispenza. I absolutely love him. Yeah. Done all his his work and read all his books, and 
and and um, who else? Bruce Lipton. You know Bruce Lipton. No. Um, Bruce Lipton is Lippo, a Lippo to his mates. Yeah, Lippo. <laughs> <laughs> to his mates. Bruce. Bruce. <laughs> you know, know, just him, like I started following him and reading all his work and yeah. then I started lecturing at the same university as him. And really? He's, he's an Aussie? He's uh, in America but he has a home in New Zealand and he, he actually um, teaches, forget what the subject is, to the first-year chiropractic students at the New Zealand College of Chiropractic. So it's it's basically on the biology of belief. Wow. So, and I also, t- I teach nutrition at um, New Zealand College of Chiropractic. Really? Yeah. So, you, you, you obviously virtually now. Well, virtually last year. Yeah. So, I did, I've i set the course up and done the course. So, this is part of the Nutrition Academy. So, mm. we teach, um, we'll be teaching the Adelaide School of Chiropractic um, Nutrition and we teach um, the New Zealand College of Chiropractic. Um, plus, we teach doctors, chiropractors, other chiropractors that have already graduated, lay people, um, and then they get the understanding mm. of where we have to go back to with food. So, yeah, and Bruce um, teaches at the New Zealand College of Chiropractic, and no doubt he did. No, he wouldn't have done it virtually because he does January, February, so he would have got out of New Zealand before it happened. We will put um, all these references, books, oh, yeah. and people in our show notes too, so um, make sure you read the show notes and get all the links. Um, Cindy, what are you most enthused about right now? My but, but, yeah, yeah. Cool. <laughs> My first grandchild. She arrives, he or she, I don't know, arrives May this year. Couple so, a couple yeah. of months away. Yeah, that's probably, I can hardly wait. Like I, I said to. <laughs> My kids say to me, Mum, you've already organised our kids and we haven't even had them yet. <laughs> but I want to homeschool them. You know, I homeschooled yeah. my kids and I, I said to them, I'll homeschool them. I'll, we'll have a daycare centre up here. They'll learn how to garden. They'll learn mm. the real things of life. <laughs> it, it's up to my kids whether they choose to do that or not. But that's, that's Doesn't all sound part like of it's it. up to them. Sounds like it's up to you. <laughs> they get up and go, where's my baby gone? <laughs> well, I took the dogs the other day. They're grand dogs. And I, I brought them up to the farm with me for the day. And mm. one of the fiancé, my daughter's fiancé, rings me and goes, we, we miss Wilbur. Where's Wilbur? I said, what are you going to be like when I bring the grandchildren up here? <laughs> Can we have Wilbur back, please? Can we have Wilbur back? <laughs> uh, tell me, what are you most incensed about right now? Um, not in this present second, but in general. Hopefully, <laughs> <laughs> nonsense is like this. Taking this is taking far too long. This interview. Uh, no. Our government, mm. our government's inadequacies and understanding about real health. Mm, that would be it, and the the fact that you know, well, we've not looked at any other option but the vaccine, and and the vaccine in the real words is not a vaccine. It's actually cancer therapy it's mm. it's genetic therapy because it's mrna it's not <laughs> SARS-CoV-2 mm. and i don't get why people don't get this it's not va- a vaccine in the, that term it's it's actually very yeah. different it's very very different technology mm. so if you think you're having a vaccine you're only having a needle but it's got gene therapy in it that's mm. that's the difference so that's that's probably my biggest Incense and and the fact that they're now dipping flowers with glyphosate and Roundup before they come into Australia—that's probably something else that's pissing me off that I just found out about. What to sort of sterilise or as a form of sterilising? Yeah, so you can't germinate. Ah, yeah, right. It sterilises the. Yeah. They put the stems in, not the. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Right. So people can't then go and germinate those flowers. Is that from a? um, Is that from a um, uh, like a, a patented? This is our. 
this is our flower IP, or is it for from more a um, customs? I think we it's can't customs have them growing and, in Australia. Yeah, customs and bugs and bacteria yeah, and right. foreign things in in this country. Um, but that's what food irradiation, by the way, is about. I don't know if people realise this, but once the food is irradiated, those seeds are dead. Yeah. Like anybody who throws their pumpkins and their tomatoes in their garden and then they just grow a pumpkin and Mm. tomato, that ain't going to happen anymore. Well, then that's the whole thing about what's it going to go, what's it going to do when it's in the compost? You, you make, your compost won't be very exciting or very no active. Bugs. There's nothing to know. So how's it going to break down? I, yeah. don't, I just, I don't think they've thought this through. <laughs> if you were in government and could make some decisions, what would you be doing around that sort of stuff? <laughs> um, <laughs> oh, God. If you could sack anyone in government, oh. would it be? No, no, no. I've always said that I, I would get rid of um, all the dangerous food. I, mm. would, I would change the food completely. And, and I know I couldn't do that overnight, um, because we're so ingrained in how we eat, but I would do it slowly but surely. Give me a decade and I reckon I'd have real food in Australia and real food only. If you do get in the government somehow, I'll vote for you for a start. Can you amalgamate the agriculture department with the health department? Uh, that would make more sense than anything else, <laughs> wouldn't it? <laughs> you promise you'll do that? I promise I'll do that. <laughs> um one, it's a question I haven't asked anyone. I don't know why. I was, I was listening to a podcast on the way up here today, listening to Brene Brown interview Dak Shepard and Tim Ferriss. It was really interesting because mm-hmm. there were some really good podcasters right there. And this question didn't come up, but I, I sort of was, was sort of talking about what, I, I, what's your genius? Like, what are you doing when you're in your genius? I got the gift of the gab. Mm. I really love to talk. Mm. And I really? love. Really? No. <laughs> That's such a lie. <laughs> Get up to the end of the interview. Um, I, I, I love to talk, but I have to educate myself first. So my genius, I guess, is really deciphering the the information that's out there on all sides of the fence and deciding through my philosophy and mm. which is vitalism, which is you know. I realise it's got other names as well, but through vitalism and through a cultural historical perspective, I can I can go through the science and realise that can't be true. There's something wrong here. There's a mistake in the method. How can that be? You know, margarine's healthier than butter. You know, that wasn't obvious. Hmm. You know, salt causes hypertension. Um, so I, I have this, I think... Eggs, eggs, too many eggs will Oh, eggs will kill you. Yeah. <laughs> Don't you love that? That yeah. goes backwards and forwards like yeah. you've never seen before. Yeah. So I think it's about, um, because I have a philosophy and a cultural and anthropological view viewpoint on things, I think I'm able to decipher the right and the wrong science. But, but still, I, I still... I, I have to let people realise that even though you've got that, there's so much noise out there mm. that sometimes you go, what if everything, you know, and I think um, Ivan Illich said this in his book, what if everything I've ever thought has been wrong? Mm. But I look at the way I've lived my life. I look at what I can say and about the health and the health I have and the health of my children. And I know it's anecdotal, but there's a lot of us out there like it. And I kind of go, no, I'm on the right step. I'm doing the right thing. Well, you said it actually really early on in the interview. You, you know, I asked you about, you know, whether you had, you know, reservations or stopping and starting and so on, and you said it was the results. 
Yeah. You know, it's got it? a certification. Let's not worry about how it happened. Just look at the result. Like, look at mm. your patients. Look at you. Look at mm. your family. You know, mm. look at those results. That's pretty compelling stuff, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. I, I think the results is what drives people to keep going. Mm. When they see the results of what's happened to this farm, like I look at it and, you know, at time, I remember seeing that fence line just down there. So in the dry, when it's dry in the winter, so we have dry winters and wet um, summers. Mm. So in the dry, it's green on my side and brown on her on that side. Yeah. And and that's when I realised after two or three years of doing what we were doing with the cattle and the regen farming, I went... Something going on. Huh. Mm. And we took a photo. We actually mm. took a photo. And all there is is a fence line between there. Yeah. And I, I sent it to... I showed Don Huber. I said, Don, look at this. And he says, you know you're doing the right thing. Yeah. So it's the result. At first you doubt. You're going, I'm putting all this work in and all this money in and it's not working and I don't know why I'm doing this. And then you look at that and you go... Yeah. And that's and that's that's as like that's a really simple and effective indicator, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah, and that really more farmers that sort of do that. And I'm not a big yeah. fan of necessarily fence line effects because that can you know neighbours can get shitty and get offside. But in terms of same rainfall, mm-hmm. you know, same environment, same climate, same temperature, same everything. It's just management. It's the it's the it's the disruption or otherwise of the humans managing either side of the fence. And is it's the variable. it's not necessarily that they do anything wrong. They just have no. a lot of cattle. No, totally. And the cattle had been eating it down whereas yeah. we were moving our cattle mm. around and they they have theirs on their whole 20 acres. So and they're wonderful neighbors. I absolutely love them. Mm. Um but you can actually see that yeah. what works. My son always goes, I wish I could manage that 20 acres, mum. <laughs> He'd love to. <laughs> he would just love to. And, you know, maybe he'll get that opportunity that he can. Yeah. But it, we've got enough work to do. I was going to say, you, we have, enough more, work you, you to have to buy more cows. Oh, I guess he could run, yeah. run their cows. Yeah. Um, what else have I got here, Cindy? Um, so, another question. Tell me about women in agriculture. What are your thoughts on that? Mm. Do you reckon there's too many? No. <laughs> I'm joking. You know, I, I sometimes, like I need men in, in my life. Mm. I, I have to have them. There are things that I just can't do. Um, but it is me that was the instigator. I am the instigator. I'm not necessarily the workhorse all the time. And although I do, I'll spend a day um, and then get exhausted. <laughs> Doing your fair share. <laughs> Doing my fair share. Mm-hmm. Um, I think women are the nurturers and they're also perhaps the change makers and they might be the ones that whisper in the husband's ear and say, or the partner's ear and say, hey, maybe we could do it a better way. And if the husband's open to suggestion, mm-hmm. and there are two types of husbands, there's ones that are open to suggestion and the ones that are rednecks. And the rednecks do it the way they want to do it and they're not going to change. Yep. But the ones that are open to suggestion, when the wife just says a little thing in there or the partner says something, and they'll go, huh, maybe we could do that. And, and, and that's, I think, as, a, as couples that are open to suggestion, miracles can happen. That's the way I see it is that when we do that together, when we work together, miracles can happen. What can? What are some suggestions that you can suggest to our lady listeners? Mm. I mean, this goes both ways, of course, but um, we're talking about women in ag or women in the world, really, because yeah. it can, you know, it doesn't have to be, you don't have to be a, 
um, a wife of a farmer or a farmer yourself, a female farmer, to sort of use this. But what are some mm. what are some suggestions that one could make to the other partner? You know, to sort of. Well, I think um, when they become educated, so my I, I find a lot of um, farmers' wives. Um, if they're not out there, and they are, they all go out and farm, but mm. they're usually at, in the home with the kids and, you know, looking after, making sure all the workers are fed. So that's often their role. It, this is the traditional role. It's not the only role, but it's traditional. I find when they become educated about food and nutrition that they can um, start it on the table. So there's a, the food's on the table. They've made something different. The conversation's different. If I, can I give an example? Totally, totally, totally. Okay, so I have a. a Are you going to like put some food on the? Do you need to go and something? <laughs> <laughs> Did you prepare something earlier? Is it, oh, damn. We can go pick, and I can do anything you want. I can make okay. you anything you no, want. No, you have just blown me away with the licorice, all sorts, <laughs> yummy tea. So, yeah, example. So a friend of mine, and we've been friends for. 25 years and she decided that she wanted a change in life her and her husband had split and she wanted a change in life so she ends up on one and a half million acres and she's the cook and she sees Maggie this and Mm. all of this stuff in the pantry and she says to the manager I want to change this I want to butcher the cows I want a garden, I want to grow food because they're in the middle of nowhere they're out near um, past long reach five hours so they're a long way out and she said, I want to create a vegetable garden. We've got enough water in the bore. We can do this. And so he got that team and he created a vegetable garden for her. They butchered cows. She did all the butchering and she fed them real foods. Mm. And he started to see, the manager started to see the difference in the kids, in their depression, because a couple of them had depression, in their workability, in their thinking ability. So this is over a year and a bit that... That's what changed him and he realised the benefit of having someone in the kitchen that was feeding the right mm. foods to the, you know, the, the young men and the young women that were working for him. And I think he, she had eight that she was feeding and she became their mama. That's what she mm. became, you know, she became yeah, the mama. And I think it's when we start to say, let's start, let's just change things in the kitchen. We can grow a few things. Like we've got one and a half million acres here. Surely we can grow something here. So we've got a boar. Let's just do these little things. And I notice that they do my nutrition course or they read my book and they start to make those changes. Mm. And I've, I've run into them going out to Longreach to, to go to see my friend and I'll be sitting next to somebody and they'll say, Oh, Cindy O'Meara, I looked, did your course. I'm on a million acres. We changed everything. We did cool. this. And now I've created an exercise program because I love exercise. And I do it online for all the other farmers out there, you know. And, and What's all. that called? What's it? Jillian. What's her name? Jillian. Yeah, the course? The actual course. Oh, yeah. my course? Yeah, my course. course, it's the Nutrition Academy. Yeah. Just, oh, so, yeah. But have you, have you tweaked that for farmers particularly or no, it's, it's it applies just, to everyone? It applies to everybody. Yeah. And it's just about... You know, what can we do? Where do we get our food? How yeah. do we get our resources when we live that far out? Yep. Um, how do we make these changes? Who do we look for in a cook that's going to come and help us do this? Mm. So um, my girlfriend now has just got another um, job with a, a small group. There's about 11 of them, I think, and that includes three little girls. And that's up in Julia Creek. And she will revolutionise what's happening in that kitchen. Wow. And they see that and they change forever. 
So I see her as an incredible change maker. She may not be the wife, but she's the woman in agriculture. Mm. Even though she's in the kitchen, mm. she's making incredible changes. And so I. Can we say who that is? Is this friend of yours? Is he you allowed to say? Yeah, I can say she'll probably. Yeah, Ricky Latcham is her name. Good work, Ricky. Yeah, good work, Ricky. Ricky's. She's incredible. There's a book in that. I, well, I kept telling her to do a cookbook and show mm. people how you're doing this. And she started doing it, but um, she went to another station and there were 30 hands and she was butchering. She was doing everything. It was too much for her, yeah. way too much. You can't, you need a, a, an assistant to help. And she was doing that all by herself. And now she realizes it tends her number yeah. and she can make can changes and yeah. she can manage that and she can do incredible things. So, between um, Julia Creek and um, Longreach, or near Longreach, it was um, out at Windora. Yeah, right. Near Windora. She went down to South Australia. So her daughter um, is um, managing a farm down there, sheep and cattle. And um, the, the boyfriend is a, a, a trucky who does all the cattle and the, and the sheep. So she went down there and they have created the most massive vegetable garden. I said to her, I went, are you feeding the whole of that, that <laughs> <The> town? <region. laughs> so this is, this is a woman in agriculture mm. that's not really in agriculture. She's in the kitchen. I'm going to get her details because I reckon um, given the, the association that you and I both have with Eat Dirt, mm. I reckon there's something in there. Ah. Uh, yeah. I do too. And oh. I get her in Julia Creek, you might just yeah. you'll see what she does. We're she does travel. it quietly. Mm. She doesn't go in there and change everything mm. immediately. Mm. So she begins mid-February up mm. there. So she's travelling from South Australia up there. It'll take yeah. her a couple of days. Um, but give her give her a little bit of time and mm. you'll see the results. We might go and visit. Yeah. Um, oh, I had another question there on the back of that one. Oh, there was more a statement that, wasn't it wonderful that the manager of that place you went to could mm-hmm. see that? It wasn't like, now watch, see how old Freddie over there is a bit, you know, not as spaced out as he was or whatever, that yeah. he he identified those changes. You well, know. he saw it in himself. Yeah. He saw incredible changes in his health. Yeah. And, and, that, and that's what I think when this happens, this is when women in agriculture make incredible change. And um, it starts in the kitchen. That's where I think it starts. I think... You're onto something, and I'm, uh, uh, and I've said it before, and I'm, you know, nothing that's happened in my life really, you know, it goes against this. Um, that they're the ones that are that are, that are going to change agriculture in Australia. Mm-hmm. I already are, already have, but I think that they are. They they have the key. They have the, as you say, you know, that nurturing capacity, that that ability to change, and the resilience to do it because. Um, you know, not many husbands wouldn't listen to their wives, and if they didn't, then they're stupid, and they should bloody <laughs> do something separate or something. But quite seriously, I think that's you know they they have the they're in the box seat, they're the the, the most powerful opportunity to to leverage um, the knowledge, mm. the courses, you know, the books that one can read now, and the fence lines that one can just look at, you know, mm. because um, because they can, you know, and men like to be. Not told what to do, but you know, having that interest and that and that vested interest and that collaboration on farm is what keeps marriages together and what keeps farm businesses going. Yeah, you know, it's not just like, you know, mum, the wife's the cook and looks after the kids, and and our mates outside all day long. There's got to be that interchange, you know. And around the kitchen table is one of the most 
wonderful forums for that to take place, you know. Most definitely. Not just the food, but the discussion, the, the community, the... Eating together, the love. The the communion and the reverence. Yes, exactly. Mm. Dr. Natasha Campbell-McBride, who's been an incredible mentor of mine, she said to me when I was interviewing her for my documentary, What's With Wheat? She said, it's time for us to get back into the kitchen to feed and nourish our families to heal this nation. Mm. And I'd like to take it a little step further. It's time for us to pick our food from our garden, get into the kitchen to feed and nourish our family to heal this nation. Because that's where I think it's going to happen it's not going to happen in the doctor's office it's not going to happen you know anywhere else it's got to come back to the family to feed and nourish them um to heal the nation that's and i when she said it to me i just about cried um and i i've quoted her so many times because that to me is where we have to go and she's a wise lady a very wise lady and that's not such a big ask is it like it's not like you know, everyone's got to go back to uni for four years or go to uni for four years to learn this stuff. Like, no. It's not as though we've, you know, got to upheave the whole e- economy. Mm-mm. It's like just make some different decisions and choices. And have priorities. That, yeah, you know, priorities. What, what are your pro- People say to me, I don't have time That's for important. that, Cindy. I don't have time mm. to get back in the kitchen. I went, well, you're going to have to spend a lot of time later for illness and sickness mm. with your kids and yourself. Or you can spend the time now and stay healthy. And that's what happens is that in Australia at the moment, the last 15 years of your life is when you spend most of your healthcare um, costs and it's when you spend most of your time sick. Mm-hmm. I don't want to spend the last 15 years of my life like that. I want to mm-hmm. spend the last 15 years as vibrant as I've spent the last 60 years. And if, you know, if I can do that, then, you know, my life has been as energetic as I can possibly make it. Well, that's a that's a, a Joel Salatin. You know, he's he has said and bangs on about it, and and uh, you know, better to pay the farmer now than the doctor later. Most definitely, yeah. and we are paying way too much for medications. Like, look at the prescribing benefits um, scheme, mm. and how many billions of dollars we spend on drugs. And because they're free, we think, well, it's just a free drug. I don't have to buy organic food, or I don't have to worry about farming. Yeah. I'll just take that drug. That'll get rid of the I pain. I can sort out this problem or my illness with that. Yeah, and they don't listen to the little mm. whispers in their body. Mm. They, they, what they do is they smother the whispers with that medication, and that's that pain or that fever or that infection. Mm. And by smothering those whispers, you will get a scream. And that scream won't be smothered by a pill. You'll have to have an operation, or you'll be in pain for a lot longer. My uncle's a, a, a perfect example. <laughs> he's had really bad back pain for four months. He lives in the US, um, so he's one of the the husbands of my mum's sister. And I just said to my aunt, I went, why doesn't he get rid of that tummy? Like he's got a tummy of a 15-month pregnant woman. I said, why doesn't he just get rid of that tummy? <laughs> His back will be so much better. Yeah. Mm. Oh, we hadn't thought of that. Yes, yeah. And I just, just thought... Now he's in major operations and major health issues and major this, and I just go, we've we've lost that art. Like I spoke to a neurosurgeon recently. I interviewed him for my course, for the nutrition course, because this is a neurosurgeon that woke up. So he says his accountant doesn't like him anymore because he's not making the money in operations. <laughs> because what happens is that the, the someone will come operation. and they'll either need brain surgery or, or spine surgery. And he says he does two things. I want you to go on the ketogenic diet and I want you to do functional movement. They come back, they don't need anything. <laughs> he's just ruined his, his, his ruined. business model. <laughs> is, that, is that a classic though, isn't it? It is a classic. 
Um, Cindy, we're going to wrap it up, I think, because we're nearly not quite two hours. Um, oh, my gosh. I know, and I've loved every second of it. Um, I'm just this has been a yarn, hasn't it? It's been lovely. <laughs> no, it's been – and what a lovely spot to do it, though, because yeah. it's been sort of our inspiration. Mm. Um, one last question. I could ask you so many more, too, but um, – Oh, we sort of covered most of that. What, if you could have a – this is a Tim Ferriss. I stole this one from Tim Ferriss. If you could have a, a billboard on the side of a highway on the on the um, Steve Irwin motorway down there, what, mm. would, what would it say? Jeez. And you could be anonymous. You could say something really rude and I don't know who it was. Or they could put your name on it. I think it would be it's time to get back into the kitchen to heal and nourish our family to heal – I mean to feed and nourish our family to heal this nation. I think that would be it. Cool. I think, that, and Natasha Campbell McBride's name on the bottom of that, you know, because that might make people think. Mm. And I think they're the words that um, are profoundly simple. It is a profoundly simple answer. We just have to let people know that that's what we've got to do. That would be a big billboard. There's a lot of words there. Oh, okay. You want one no, word? No, you want no one I love word. it. No, oh. there is no limit to the size of that billboard. But that's the thing, and this one is a whole not, this is a whole other interview. We, and I shouldn't have dropped this one at the end, but like, but isn't it sometimes that we're not meant to think too much? Isn't this this you know this whether it's government, pharmaceutical, corporate ag, not corporate ag, but industrial ag? They don't want us to think too much. No. No, they just want you to be... Because we're dangerous sheep. if we're, we're thinking. And, and that is the, the problem, is that they, you can see mainstream media and you can see the government squashing voices like us mm. and me. I'm squashed. Um, I've been banned by Google ads. I've been banned by Facebook ads. Have you? Just because I say diet or food, nutrition, mm. health. Mm. You can get it from food. Or, yeah, yeah, well, our company is... We're always saying the wrong thing. But it's yeah. only about... If you, you know, it's all about food. Well, you're actually saying the right thing. It's just that the, the it just depends on who's listening, you know. Well, it, it's this. It's the burning of books. That's what's happening. Is that mm. um, people are being banned from Facebook, Instagram, Twitter? You know, Trump was banned along with seventy thousand other accounts that same day. Mm. It's because it's not suiting the narrative, and we're the thinkers of the world. Not many people are out there thinking. They've not. Like I think about my dad, he was a pharmacist who became a, a chiropractor who saw the two sides to uh, the paradigm shift. Mm. It's like farming, you know, biodynamic farming is a paradigm shift of vitalism and mechanism is the ag- big ag as we see it today. Mm. You can't fight against, you can't fight in these two paradigms. You have to move to the next paradigm. And for dad, he moved to that next paradigm and then taught me and I'm able to teach my children and they'll teach their children. So we're fortunate because we've, I've had generations of this, but I'm seeing this beautiful generation now that is, you know, my kids' ages, which is that 25 to 30-year-olds who are waking up big time mm. and they are fighting. I was talking to friends they're yesterday. They're feisty, aren't they? They're feisty and they're mm. fighting. And I was talking to these friends and, she, and they said, oh, yes, our daughter, she's, you know, she's into all these conspiracy theories. And I said, yeah. And let her open her voice and talk about mm. these things because they're not conspiracy theories. They, they are theories that might be fact mm. and we need to explore them. That are, that are absolutely worth considering and exploring and discussing and being open-minded about. Open-minded. Yeah. And then if it, it goes to a closed door and it, it's not working yeah. for you, then move to the next door that's and fine, decide yeah. to open that up and see yeah. what that's going to give you. Because that's a whole lot healthier than just ch- turning on 
commercial channel, uh, TV news every night. Oh, I've, I've quit it. I can't, I can't even listen to the ABC. I used to think I could listen to the ABC, mm. but last year, around March, when it all started, I turned the ABC off. I listen to you. I listen to um, other podcasts, like I love Ivor Cummins. He's out of Ireland. He's an engineer that woke up. Um, who else? Oh, I like Pete's. Not all of his, but I do like Pete Evans. Oh, yeah, yeah. I enjoy his podcast. Dill. Dell Big Tree. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Friday morning. I'm this crazy woman. It's like, don't speak to me for the next two hours. Yeah, I want to listen to Dell. Um, Robert Kennedy. Yeah. Um, Taylor Winterstein. Um, oh gosh. Jennifer Barham. Floriani. I, I, there's so many of them out there mm. that I listen to and I will pick and choose. I love Dave. Uh, is it David Martin at the moment? David Martin is the most incredible thinker of this era. Yeah. And he's really worth listening to. Um, so yeah, he's, I'd like to interview him. And it, and it, if it's just that one finds these, listens to them or not and goes, Oh, that, that really resonates or it doesn't resonate. You know, it's not. We're not sitting here going, you must listen to this and, 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 and act accordingly. It's more, you know, it's refreshing. It's refreshing to get another point of view. Um, and it's and, and, and the topics are broad, but there are some themes there, aren't there, you know, yeah. which, are, which are healthy to, 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 to explore. And, again, you don't have to go and change life about it, but it's just about, you know, considering and seeing how that, how that feels in your, in your world, you know. Mm. I, I, it is about shutting the television off because I don't believe they're telling us the truth. Mm. And listening to these independent thinkers that are not making billions of dollars, they're just seeing the light and wanting you to just think for yourselves, be a critical thinker as opposed to somebody who's just going with, oh, this is what it's all about and that's what Mm. that television is showing me and that's what it's telling me and I, I can't watch any television anymore i just I've, i i stopped it about three years ago and i mm. stopped the abc march last year um i think that's wise um now if you want to connect i'm talking to the, my listeners now with cindy um we connected actually it was marcus pierce who connected us wasn't it or do we marcus sort of no well, i no, was speaking no. in burua Oh, you were too. I was speaking in Burua, the, and the um, wives of your managers were there. Yeah, it was at the um, uh, International Women's, Women's Day. Women's Day, and they Emma. were there, and they came up to yes. me and they said, "Do you know Charlie Arnott? And That's I went, "No, I don't know Charlie Arnott. You need to meet Charlie Arnott." That's right. And then <laughs> you you interviewed me on um, up, up for, for a, a chat, chat. Mm-hmm. with with Kim and Karen, mm-hmm. and then and that was that's a your. Your podcast is on the wellness couch, which is, um, I guess, facilitated by um, Marcus. by Marcus Pierce, mm-hmm. and who's a dad at the school that Lily goes to. Like it's this crazy little circle, and it's yeah. so uh, like even that little community has been such a wonderful thing to be part of. I mean, talking about your community, you yeah, know, yeah. Um, with Karen and Kim, what you know, listening to your interviews, Marcus's just passion for life, mm. and you know the blue zones and um, and hundred not out. Oh, it's brilliant! Just, there's, a, there's another one, the Wellness Couch. I listen to yeah, a lot of those as well. Yes, and that, they'll mm. be in the show notes. So you know, it's, what I'm finding is wonderful about this space, and I say it every time, but I'll, I'm, but for a good reason is you just step into it and you find your place, you find the people that you engage with and resonate with, and it's you know. 
that thing about, you know, you are the average of the five people you hang out with the most. And you, you might be hanging out with people just on your ears on the podcast, you know, mm-hmm. and that's a really healthy thing. I think so. And then there's another connection also because my brother's one of – my brother was a skier, mm. uh, an Australian skier, and Stevie Lee married one of the Chantuzies. Oh, Toddy. Mm. Of course, that's right. Yes. That's right. I oh, know. It's, it's, it's and Toddy and I saw Toddy. No, Marcus and I saw Toddy recently. Yeah. Was it last year? I was yeah, last I think year. around that time you were saying. Yeah. I can't remember that was though. But there's another. You know, yeah. my brother and mm. you know, your wife. Uh, yeah. uh, you know, they're known. I just, that's right. I just thought I was meant to meet Charlie. That's all that well, was we were today. meant to sit here and on this wonderful evening, mm, um, looking up, uh, looking over <laughs> your beautiful farm, um, Cindy. We need to call it quits because um, we need to. Yeah, no, it's I don't know, it's getting on, but I need to check out your centropic oh, yeah. thing there before, before. It's dark. That was so amazing. I thank knew you. it would be, and we covered so much cool stuff. And um, thank you so much. Thank you. Cindy, can and you enjoy that bottle of wine from Gem Tree, won't you? I will. McLaren Thank Vale, you. South Australia, giving giving um, giving Melissa and, and Mike a plug down there. It's delicious. Thank you. Enjoy. I'll enjoy it. Thanks, Cindy. <laughs> Well, there you go. I had a lovely chat there with uh, Cindy and her farm at Mulaney about nutrition and environment and all those lovely things. Um, we did touch on a few things that we probably could have dived a lot more deeper into, but maybe that could be another episode. Talking about a next episode, it's going to be Grant Hilliard from Feather and Bone. Uh, they are a essentially a butcher shop based in Sydney. And um, Grant has a fascinating story around how he got into butcher shop, butcher shopping and his love of connecting people with their food. See you next week on The Regenerative Journey. This podcast is produced by Rhys Jones at Jaeger Media. If you enjoyed this episode, please feel free to subscribe, share, rate and review. For more episode information, please head over to www.charliearnett.com.au.